Welcome, everyone. Transformative might be the right word because we're going to undergo a metamorphosis. <laughs> My granddaughter once asked me when she was six, did I know what metamorphosis meant? And uh, I couldn't understand what she was saying because she said it with a thick Ayrshire accent and a six-year-old vocabulary. And um, I said, when I finally extracted what she was trying to say, so are you trying to say metamorphosis, which is a long word for a six-year-old? <laughs> yes, she said. She couldn't, absolutely couldn't believe that grandma could know such a big word. <laughs> and you learn, you learn all the time when you're six. And I said, yes, it means transformation. Oh, and I said, have you been doing caterpillars and butterflies at school? And she said, yes. And then she went on to share with me, our teacher doesn't know how to spell metamorphosis. <laughs> Uh, which I first of all, inwardly thought, which person is this being entrusted with the education of my granddaughter who can't spell metamorphosis? And, but I didn't say that. I said, oh, I think she's kidding you. Give the benefit of the doubt to the teacher. And she said, oh, no, Grandma, she isn't. She had to look it up on her iPad. <laughs> so... But it is actually the most amazing, not just a metaphor, because it's real, it's there in the real world, um, along with other. There are many other examples of metamorphosis, of course. Uh, but it's more than a metaphor, it's a model. And there's so much, the more I delved into this model, the more I learned about ourselves and where we are now. There's a story told about him a butterfly who was speeding along the motorway in a fast sports car, as they do, and was stopped by the police. And the police uh, demanded to see the butterfly's driving license. So the butterfly fished out the driving license and showed it to the police officer, who looked at it slightly uh, distrustfully and looked again at the, uh, the butterfly that was driving and again at the picture of the caterpillar inside the license. <laughs> and the butterfly realized the mistake and said, I'm terribly sorry, it's an old photo. <laughs> but you know, that, silly though that is, uh, are we running on an old photo? What about us? Are we in process of transformation, spiritual transformation, which in turn will transform, transform the world? And if so, what can we learn from the process that the caterpillar goes through? And I think, I hope, you'll be surprised and delighted to discover how much we can learn. Not all of it is good. There's a lot of, about ourselves which we won't like in here. And the actual transformation process is, is very painful. But the result can, is it possible that a pesky garden grub that we might, you might well want to eliminate from your cabbage patch can turn into a flying flower, as they're sometimes called? Do come on in. You've only just begun. There's Kate. Welcome. <coughs> Um, is it possible that such a thing can happen, that such transformation can happen from something that we tolerate because we know it becomes a butterfly, or we don't tolerate because it eats our cabbages, to something, into something that pretty well, you could say universally, evokes delight. Most people love butterflies and pollinates the flowers in our gardens. 
Can an insect that keeps on and on, demand, uh, growing and growing and expanding, we'll look at that expansion pro process in a minute, it's, take heart, anyone who's struggling with, with uh, Weight Watchers or similar associations, can something that expands its BMI a thousandfold, imagine multiplying your BMI by a thousand in, in its early stages and keeps on and on expanding and growing out of itself and shedding itself, can it possibly transform into a creature that weighs less than a gram? Can a, a grub that crawls along a leaf at a time through the garden become a creature weighing less than a gram that is capable, although there are interesting complications in this, is capable of traveling, making migratory journeys of up to 9,000 kilometers right across the globe. It's an astounding transformation. And what about us? Where do we think we are? I think the, the biggest problem, the biggest block to our transformation is the assumption that we're already there, that there's nothing more to transform. We're it. We're the pinnacle of creation. And therefore, we can deal with the rest of creation as we wish. But if this kind of transformation is possible, what might it mean for hum humanity? With God and with caterpillars, all things are possible. And this, this metamorphosis story, I think, is hugely helpful to ourselves. So this morning, between, I'll get my little clock out so I don't keep you from your lunch or anything drastic like that. Um, between now and one o'clock, we'll, I'll share some thoughts with you and we'll take some time to, for you to reflect on them and maybe to share your thoughts with the people immediately around you, if you wish. But let's start right at the beginning. What is the key to this transformation? Well, uh, I'm staying with the caterpillars and butterflies first, but let me, be, if you'll bear with me for another grandchild story, they are an endless source of stories, actually, and sometimes wisdom as well. The younger child, who's now four, when she was three, uh, my daughter was encouraging her to write a letter to Santa. Actually, that's a, probably a very bad idea because she's starting them off on a trail of consumerism that will grow and grow every year. Um, because at the time, Isabella, she's called, didn't have any thoughts. She didn't particularly want anything. Well, she did. She wanted one thing. So, sitting down writing this letter to Santa, and this is how the dialogue went. So, Isabella, <clears throat> is there anything that you'd like Santa to bring you for Christmas? And my daughter would write it down then and write the letter. And Isabella, who's very, um, shall we say, very focused, she knows what she wants and she goes for it. Unlike her sister, who's very distracted and wants everything and doesn't quite get to anywhere. At least that's a terrible, <laughs> terrible judgment to make. But they're very different. One's very athletic and up and at it. The other's more thoughtful, I think. But um, So this is how it went. What would you like Santa to bring you for Christmas? And in fairly short time, the answer came very clearly, a key. What do you do with a three-year-old who wants a key for Christmas? <laughs> My daughter didn't know what to make of it at all. So she said, a key, yes. Oh, she was very definite, a key. Well, 
what would you want a key for? I just, I want a key. She didn't know, she didn't appear to know what for. Well, she did, as it turned out. So my daughter said, now a key is usually used to unlock something. What would you like to open up with your key? And the answer came very definitely and very quickly, a car like mummy's. <laughs> I'm still amazed at that, that a three-year-old would think like that, to think, I'll never get the car, but if I get the key, that's really all I need. <laughs> and you could say, if you look at the, the caterpillar story, you know, you'll never get the butterfly. That's way off. That's in another world. But perhaps they already have the key. And the key, and some of you will know this, some of you may not. It came as news to me when I first heard it some years ago now. I don't know if we have any biologists here or lepidopterists or whatever butterfly experts are called. Um, if you are, you will not, I know from experience, I ask that in groups like this, are there any experts? And nobody ever owns up to being an expert. So if you are an expert and you know that this is, there's anything wrong with uh, actually the facts of what I'm sharing with you, uh, please do tell us so that I don't continue to share wrong facts. But, um, but the, um, the key really to the transformation is already present in the egg that the butterfly lays. And it's about the cells that make up the, the caterpillar generally. And in gen as far as I understand it, in general terms, the caterpillar cells are, well, all the cells are the same DNA, obviously, in the caterpillar. Some of them are what I could call normal caterpillar cells, but some of them are different. <clears throat> same DNA, but the biologists say they resonate on a different frequency from the normal caterpillar cells. I don't know what that means, I'm not a biologist, but it is, that's the, that's the fact of the matter. I'm not making this up as I go along, it's the fact. And they are called, by the biologists, the imaginal cells. And that word comes from, uh, is taken from the Latin imago, which means the mature insect, that particular mature insect, that particular butterfly that the, that caterpillar will become. So they are imaginal in that they carry the prototype or the future butterfly, that particular butterfly. Um, they, they resonate on a different frequency from the rest of the caterpillar cells. And as a result, they're, they're less of them, far less of them. But each one, and this is something that I'm sure will speak to many of you as it did to me, think they are alone. They think they're different. They think they're walking to a di different drumbeat. They don't know that there's a different drumbeat. They're just, where, you know, where, is, where do I belong in this? Uh, they don't think like that, of course, but many human beings do. Many people on a spiritual journey do think they're alone um, and think that they're somehow different and not quite walking to the same drumbeat as, as everyone else. That's quite a common feeling, I think. The caterpillar's immune system, however, regards these imaginal cells as aliens because they're different. And that, again, is a very common experience. If it's different, it must be hostile. So let's suppress it, let's, let's beat it down. And so the caterpillar's immune system tries everything to keep these, these imaginal cells down. And it does that 
by drenching them with juvenile hormone to stop them growing up. I don't know if that rings any bells anywhere. Um, keep them infantile. Keep them so that they don't ask questions and above all so that they don't connect with each other. So these cells are kept dormant through the caterpillar phase. Now, that's the, the, the caterpillar system is very different, and there's a reason for caterpillars to do that. It's not that they're deliberately trying to prevent spiritual evolution or anything like that. The caterpillar has to reach a certain stage of readiness for the transformation. Perhaps we do too. Before you can do transformation, there has to be a form to transform. And that form, you could take that, that linguistic connection further. You could say, as long as it's still before its transformation, it has to conform as well in some ways. Otherwise, that's why young people, the, the worst thing that can happen to a young person is to be not in the peer group. There's a, there's a very powerful sense of wanting to conform. But then we reach a stage in our lives and in our spiritual journeys where a certain amount of dissent kicks in and a questioning and wondering and if, in order to grow further, there seems to come a point when we have to question some of the, the things that we used to conform to. Not in a hostile or aggressive way, but a questioning way. Um, but so the caterpillar suppresses these imaginal cells right through the, um, the caterpillar stage. I, when I think of the imaginal cells, <clears throat> I think of the prophetic voices in our world today, or in our world generally, over the many uh, eons of evolution, the prophetic voices have traditionally always been suppressed. Uh, often they have come then to be honored as respected guides, but this is said a little bit tongue in cheek, but in, you could possibly say, you know, on average, there's about 300 years between demonization and canonization. Um, a lot of people that we now respect, the most recent one that comes to mind is Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, who, had, who was way ahead of his time in thinking about spiritual transformation, spiritual evolution, still is ahead of his time. And he was uh, quite heavily suppressed by the church and by the Society of Jesus, of whom he was a member. Now he's required reading, I, was, I assume, by, certainly by Jesuits in formation. Um, that was a, much less than 300 years. It's, what, 50 or less than 50 years since he died, I think, about that, just over 50 years. So he, had a, he was fast-tracked. <laughs> but um, in general, people who speak out and say things must be different, that we need to do things differently, are not welcome because there's a huge <coughs> weight of... Uh, need and desire to stay with the status quo. Yeah, I have a friend in, um, who was ordained, she still is ordained, but she's no longer a practicing priest, but she, um, she was an ordained as an Anglican priest many years ago now and practiced, I better not say where, um, she was a curate in a parish. And she was quite a forward thinker, she still is. And she decided one Christmas Eve, she was put in charge of the late Christmas Eve service, not the children's service, but one that I think started at nine or 10 at night. And not midnight mass either, she didn't mess with that, but an intermediate service on Christmas Eve evening. 
And she'd fixed with some of the congregation that they would go out, they would be outside the church, and at a certain point in the service, they would come in as if they were coming in off the streets and make a bit of a rumpus, and as if they were drunk and disorderly, and um, just, just mess around a bit. So at the due point, they came in, four or five of them, and she watched the congregation's reaction. You can imagine what it would be. What would your reaction have been? Uh, what would my reaction have been? I came to a nice Christmas Eve service. I don't want this. Get them out. And she let it go on for about four or five minutes. And um, various people tried to get them to go and calm down and that kind of thing. But then she, she stopped it. She said, OK, let's, let's sit down quietly and think about this. The reason we did this is to remind ourselves what it was really like in Bethlehem that night. Not sweetness and calm and the stars twinkling over a nice, nice uh, fresh straw and all of that. It would have been mayhem in Bethlehem that night because of the senses. Uh, so um, if you try, that was a, a little bit of an imaginal cell thing to do, a little bit of a prophetic note to say, let's just think slightly differently and let's let ourselves be stretched into what, what this really means, our spiritual journey. She was called in by the parish priest a couple of days later and said, OK, I hope you have a, a good new year, but please don't ever do anything like that again. Because a lot of, he didn't say this, but the thing, the, the, what was behind it was a lot of people come here to have their comfort zone reinforced. They don't want stuff like that. So anyway, that's a, just a little example of um, what happens when, uh, what, how we react to prophetic voices. How do we react ourselves to prophetic voices in all kinds of ways? Another more um, global example was James Lovelock, who wrote the Gaia Hypothesis, developed the Gaia Hypothesis. So some, I don't know my dates here, but within the last century, certainly. And his hypothesis was that the planet, planet Earth, is a living organism, and we are part and parcel of that life. We are intertwined, interdependent on that, or we are a, a living cell in that organism, that living organism. And he developed the theory that it will, will be self-sustaining if we don't interfere with it too much, and it will renew itself, and it will keep things at the right temperature, and so on, in the oceans if we don't interfere with it. But if we do, and we send it off course, that, that dynamic, then we're in trouble. He was, he was laughed out of town. He wasn't taken seriously in the, in the scientific community at all. And now he's standard reading. Everybody realizes that's exactly what we are, what the Earth is. So a prophetic voice is always, tends always to be suppressed. And Jesus himself said, You've killed all the prophets and you'll kill me. But he could have added, you can kill all the dreamers, but you will never kill the dream. You can kill all the visionaries, but you'll never kill the vision. And it's like that with the imaginal cells. The immune system tries to keep them down and even destroy them. But they multiply. They multiply faster than anything can destroy them. And eventually, they reach the stage of a meltdown, and we'll look at that as we go through the day, when the caterpillar itself, all the caterpillar cells disintegrate, really totally disintegrate into the gloopy soup that you'd find if you opened up a chrysalis. Uh, so 
they, in that meltdown, just to continue with the theme of the imaginal cell, what happens there, and then we look at it more closely uh, later, they discover for the first time their connectedness with each other. And that's a powerful moment. Otherwise, each imaginal cell, if you can imagine it containing one little bit, one cell of the future butterfly, perhaps, one part. So if they didn't connect with each other, you would never have a butterfly. You might have a wing or an eye or a leg. You would never have a butterfly. To have the metamorph, to, to transform completely, it's a question for everyone. It's, it's all of us together, all of us in this together. Um, and, and then, then they, they go on to, into the meltdown, and I'll leave that until we get to the meltdown, because what happens in the meltdown, I think, is very similar to what's happening now in our, in our country and in our world. Um, so it would be quite important to know what goes on there in, inside the chrysalis. Is, is there anything that, in there that could help us navigate the very turbulent times that we're living through now? But the one thing <clears throat> that I would... I would want to say is the, the key, if you like, the key, like Isabella's key to my daughter's car, uh, would be this. From the very beginning, from the moment that egg is laid, and the egg itself is smaller than a pinhead, a butterfly's egg, but from the very beginning, the imaginal cells are within it. And that takes me straight to the scripture, the kingdom is within you. Everything we are destined to become is already within us. Um, as Jesus said, and certainly there are Old Testament readings like this, that you don't have to fly to the ends of the earth. You don't have to go to the bottom of the ocean. You don't have to read every book in the library. The key is within us, all of us, um, often dormant. Perhaps you could say in the majority of human beings, still dormant, but awakening. And a place like the center, for instance, and the whole movement of meditation, but other things, the movements for social justice, <clears throat> all kinds of stirrings that are going on in our world today are signs of that, though, that imaginal cell waking up to something more. We can be so much more than we are now. But this raises big questions. Uh, the first one I mentioned earlier, is humanity actually going anywhere? Excuse me, this hot frog, I don't know what it is. Are we going anywhere or are we already there? And that complacency of assuming that we're already there has, has misled, misled us through history. It's misled nations to assume that they're there and they know how to tell everybody else how to get there. Um, it's misled human beings generally to assume that they are the pinnacle of creation. God rested on the final day and that was it. We, we were it. And now we can dominate and abuse creation as much as we like. And that, that's an ex extreme view, but it, it has been practiced and we have abused creation. Um, if we are not yet there, if we think we are there, what do we make of people like Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth? Well, especially Jesus of Nazareth, who is, I think even um, Joseph Ratzinger said this. It's not often I find myself in agreement with Joseph Ratzinger, but he said, and I haven't read all his works, I have to admit, but it's somewhere he says, Jesus represents the next stage of evolution or embodies the next stage of, or perhaps the final stage of evolution. 
of humanity. I'll leave that thought with you, whether you agree with it or not. But certainly when we look at Jesus, we see somebody who is certainly living in a different plane to ourselves, and yet at the same time living on the same plane. So incarnate and yet already holding and, in, in, and revealing um, the fullness of what we can be. To make a, find a simpler analogy, um, I, and at this time of the year it's especially apt, I was, um, I was once wandering through the garden and the first daffodils were just coming through, <coughs> little globes like they are now, <coughs> just shining through, just those yellow little buds, you know? I love them at that stage. And I, they say that the first sign of madness is when you talk to yourself. <laughs> the second sign of madness is when you argue with yourself. <laughs> and the final sign of madness is when you lose the argument. And, and I went through all three stages that morning in the garden because I, um, I went out into the garden talking to myself, uh, admittedly, silently, in my mind. And I said to myself, oh, the daffodils have come again. And then I argued with myself and said, well, that was a stupid thing to say. They've never been gone anywhere. They haven't come from anywhere. There wasn't a helicopter flying over in the night that dropped them fully formed into the garden. They've never been anywhere. So they've always been there in the earth, right. So what have the daffodils done then if they haven't come from somewhere? And at the time, I was thinking of the Christmas hymns, you know, God came down to earth from heaven. And that started to wobble a bit. And I thought, well, because I'm the, the kind of formation, spiritual formation I've had, which has been very much influenced by the Ignatian tradition, but also by Celtic Christianity and Franciscan and all incarnational and all Christian spirituality is incarnational, uh, would all say God is in all things and all things are in God. Therefore, God is never absent from earth. So God doesn't come from somewhere else like an absentee landlord to fix things and implement plan B. But it's what, what did the daffodils tell me that morning? They told me, well, actually, they haven't been away, but they are now revealing themselves in a new way. They are revealing the daffodilness of themselves, the fullness of everything they can be. And for me, I've never forgotten that, um, because that rang much more true to the nativity story and the incarnation story, that God was never absent, but reveals God's self in a new way through the incarnation. Um, and then, uh, yes, I, I lost the argument, as I said. I, I wanted to suddenly say, I, I wanted to just climb on the roof and say, you know what, God doesn't come down, God comes up. Now, that's not just a matter of prepositions, um, I don't think. I think it's, uh, some of our hymns are just a matter of language and prepositions, I, I think, and maybe need overhauling. But, but this, uh, this sense that the holy, the holy presence that's everywhere in creation and the earth and in each of us and in every living thing reaches a point where it begins to reveal itself more and more fully. And we see that the full revelation, I would suggest, in Jesus of Nazareth. Um, so what does spiritual evolution mean? What does, we won't go into Teilhard's thinking now. This isn't, this isn't a day on Teilhard, but uh, he's very helpful uh, when, when we are thinking about spiritual evolution. 
Um, uh, one thing that helped me get in touch with this a bit more was a long time ago, and I was in Paris in the, in the Science Musician, muse, Museum. Musician. And uh, too much resonance going on here, I think. And um, there was a sign that's probably long gone now, but at the, start, at the entrance to the evolution section there that said, hominization is a process that is probably still incomplete. In other words, the physical evolution of, of us as a, as, as, um, as a species, homo sapiens, hominization, we could be, it could still be ongoing. I think there's quite a lot of thinking around now that says probably evolution's slowing down. But you know, who knows? In a couple of generations, we may be born with chips already implanted, tuned into Google, and goodness knows what doesn't bear thinking of. Uh, who knows what e physical evolution will do? But underneath that, it said, but humanization has barely, is a process that has barely begun and is still very fragile. So it's one thing to develop physically as a species on this planet. It's quite another thing to move towards becoming more and more and more fully human. And Irenaeus said, the glory of God is the human being fully alive. We are not yet fully alive. And so spiritual evolution is a process which is happening and may be escalating in our times. It may seem the opposite sometimes, but when we get to the chrysalis, we may see, well, maybe this is a crucible of change and transformation. Um, another question is, will the future just happen? Or is it being shaped by our choices? Will it just be downloaded on us? And um, for many people who have given up on the political process or on the um, various other things that are going on and just think, I'm just here and whatever is decided will happen to me. And it is tempting to, to feel like that, because it feels we have very little say in anything and very little influence and very, very small voices. Uh, but the spiritual journey, it doesn't see it like that. The spiritual journey requires us, invites us, and requires us, I think, to be co-creators with God of our own future. So our choices will make a difference to how that future unfolds. And given that, possibility, how will we learn to make those choices more wisely? So um, <clears throat> that's just a little bit about the imaginal cell. But if you could say that each one of us here today is an imaginal cell within our world. And as we see as we go on, this isn't an oppositional thing. It's not that the imaginal cells are the chosen ones and they get to become the butterfly. It turns out, as you'll see, to be everybody, all the cells in the caterpillar, are part of the process of becoming a butterfly. <coughs> it's just a different role that they play. But the imaginal, each one of us, an imaginal cell holding some unique part of the future of humanity within us, that's an amazing thought. And how, what, how will we discover what that, that unique contribution is? And, and how will we incarnate it? How will we make it real? 
And uh, it's, it comes back to this old hoary question of vocation. I always get a bit prickly when I hear vocation, the word vocation, used almost exclusively to describe priestly, and, uh, priestly vocations and vocations for the religious life. Everybody has a vocation. Um, every child that's born today has a vacation. Everyone living on the planet has something within them which will unfold through, through their circumstances, which can become something which contributes to the, the story of humanity becoming more and more fully human. Or in, in other circumstances, the opposite. It can work against that. And largely, it's down to our choices. But I'm realize, I realize every time I say this or think this, it's fairly easy to stand here comfortable, warm, well-fed, it's a home to go to, no worries about the future, really, <coughs> apart from massive global recession and stuff like that, and think about what contribution can I make to the world when other people, perhaps the majority of people on this planet, don't have such a choice. They, they just have to survive. Well, certainly one of our, one part of a vacation of everyone is to care for each other, and especially for those who don't have a voice and don't have a, a choice. So maybe we can move on. Um, maybe for, we'll just look a little bit at the caterpillar <clears throat> and then take a little break. And then we'll come back to the caterpillar and see what happens when it goes into meltdown. And this afternoon, we'll spend a little time in the chrysalis, because there's a lot to learn in the chrysalis. And then we'll, we'll fly. Um, because whatever we may think about ourselves, whatever the, cater the caterpillar has no sense that it's born to fly. It couldn't, it, you know, the story about the two caterpillars sitting on a leaf, chomping their way through a leaf, and a butterfly flies overhead. And one caterpillar says to the other, you'll never get me up in one of those things. <laughs> well, the truth is you are becoming one of those things, whether you know it or not. And there's this complete uh, chasm between caterpillar world and butterfly world, so that the two can't cross. The caterpillar can't begin to guess what the butterfly is going to be. And the butterfly can't go back and tell the caterpillars. And there's that kind of complete, it reminds me of Jesus at the Ascension saying, I'm going now to, he says the Father, to, to butterfly world, you could say. But, and, and you won't see me again. I can't come back and tell, I can't come back and tell you. You have to go through the process yourself, the process of transformation. <clears throat> so let's start with the, <coughs> with the caterpillar world. And with the egg, and don't, don't ask me <clears throat> which came first, the butterfly or the egg, because that's a, <clears throat> that's a question for a philosopher. The egg is laid on a Goldilocks leaf. That means, you know, the Goldilocks, we live on a Goldilocks planet. Um, the Goldilocks story about the, the little, is it, what is it, little... Goldilocks and the three bears. So the, she, she goes to their home and she tries everything out and the one pe the bowl of porridge is too hot and the other is too cold and the middle one is just right. And one chair is too big and one chair is too small and no, one chair is too hard and one is too soft and the middle one is just right. And that's what we mean by a Goldilocks situation. The butterfly lays her egg on a Goldilocks leaf 
She lays her egg on the leaf that is just the right food for the, that particular caterpillar. That particular caterpillar likes those leaves and she, that's where she lays her egg. I mean, the, the wisdom embedded in, in the natural world is totally mind-blowing, I think, in thousands of different ways. It just works. So the egg is already laid in the, in the optimum circumstances for its survival and, and sustaining thereafter. What about ourselves? Well, we don't know much about any other planets or life on any, any other planets, if there is life on any other planets. But we are told, um, and it's reasonable to, to assent to that, that, that scientific fact, that, that Earth itself is a Goldilocks planet. Certainly within our solar system it is. It's not too hot if it were further, further, closer to the sun, like Venus, it would be too hot. If it were further away, it would be too cold. The temperature is just right for life to evolve on this planet at this temperature. It's the right size, it's not flown off into space because it was too small and it's not sunk back into the sun because it was too big. And it is, so we live on a Goldilocks planet where the conditions are apparently just right for life to evolve. And there's, there's thousands of different parameters that are just right. Um, you can read it all if you read some popular science about these things. Um, the, the conditions are optimum for life as we know it to evolve. That doesn't mean, of course, that life always has to be as we know it. It could be something completely different somewhere else. But we really can say we live on a Goldilocks planet, a very beautiful Goldilocks planet. And when we were conceived, each of us, <coughs> although the Goldilocks story doesn't necessarily continue after birth or even in some rare cases before birth. But at conception, each of us was also laid, as it were, in an optimum place where the temperature was just right for the, the fetus to develop. Not too hot, not too cold. The food supply was just right through the placenta. The conditions were just right. The, the womb that we were laid in or settled in was, um, was even uh, able to grow and accommodate our e expansion, uh, even if there were two or even three of us um, there in there together. <coughs> so <coughs> an optimum situation that we were conceived into, that doesn't mean, of course, that every child who's born is born into an optimum household or a, a Goldilocks household. So we, we also had that best possible start uh, sadly, it doesn't always continue when the baby's actually there, as sadly we know. And then when they hatch, then the fun starts. Um, because the way that the caterpillar lives its life is, well, the main things that it's concerned about are greed uh, or, or need. Need first, which, which turns into greed, you could say, and defense. I wouldn't even say it's greed in a caterpillar, but it is in, in, in us, I think. Um, the need to get the food and the need to defend ourselves from predators. Those, those two are foundational instincts, of course. And there's also the instinct to procreate. But that doesn't happen in caterpillar world. That happens later, butterfly world. So the, the, uh, the need for food, which we all have, um, certainly in the Western world, is 
very largely turn into greed. You know, we want more and more of everything and more and more choice, or at least we're getting, we're being given more and more choice. We don't necessarily want it. Um, I don't know whether you really need 40 types of toothpaste and 25 different yogurts on the shelf. A lot of people are saying now, no, let's simplify. And that's a sign of the butterfly world coming, I think. But for the caterpillar, basically life is a 24-7 takeaway. Everything, they, they'll chomp their way through every leaf on the tree, including the leaf that they're sitting on. Um, so you could say the hallmark of this period is, is reckless consumption, completely reckless consumption with absolutely no concern on, whether, on the effect on, of anyone else or on the rest of, of creation. Well, I'm sad to say that that's also the hallmark of how humanity, the human species, has been on this planet. Our track record is exactly that. 24-7 takeaway, reckless consumption. We have consumed the planet that we're sitting on, or we're in process of consuming it, to the point where we reach meltdown, and that isn't that far away. We've seen signs already. So they expand, of course, you would. A thousand-fold expansion of BMI. That's not funny, goodness me. Um, it's a wonder they don't all get heart attacks and things. But, um, but how do they cope with it? Well, they expand and expand, and when they get too big for themselves, they shed. They shed the outer layer. But actually, the shedding, it sounds like the sort of thing we're encouraged to do, say in Lent, you know, um, let's, let's lean up a bit, let's, um, let's think about, let's simplify our lifestyles. That kind of shedding is not what the caterpillars are really about. It's actually a byproduct of acquisition, not of letting go, but of acquisition, because we acquire more and more, so we need a bigger space to keep it in. <clears throat> I went, the, the, as probably most places are going through periods of um, uh, housing, the, the housing shortage, and every local authority is casting around to where to build the next batch of houses, and every local community is protesting that they don't want it there, wherever there is. Um, and I went to a, a, a presentation by some developers who wanted to put a, a new estate on in our village. And I must admit, I was a bit naughty, but they, they, they were carrying on about affordable housing. That, the local authorities are insisting on affordable housing. You should see what some, some people's idea of affordable housing is. And this was the same. Most of what they were presenting were four and five bedroom houses. No way affordable. So I... I challenged one of the, these guys and I said, these, do, these don't look like affordable housing to me. Oh, we are building affordable houses, he said. I said, well, can you tell me what would the point be of, of building non-affordable houses? I mean, I was, being, I was being naughty because I knew what they, I know what they mean by affordable. But anything that's not affordable seems a bit pointless to build. And he said, oh, well, no, you see, the next, the next layer up, he said, and he showed me, these are these are affordable houses and these are aspirational houses. <laughs> so I don't know whether this really works, that you buy an affordable house, you grow out of it like the caterpillar, you shed it, and you go into an aspirational house, and then I don't know what comes after aspirational, I didn't ask. <laughs> but you can, it, that's what the caterpillars do, they, go, they grow out, out of everything and into something bigger. 
And that's what many, many of us do, certainly in the Western world. I've done it myself. We've got moved into bigger houses. And the more house you have, the more you fill it with things that you really don't either want or need. And until, you, until something forces a shedding exercise on you, a real shedding exercise, when you downsize, <laughs> and, and then you realize how much stuff you've accumulated and kept on buying a bigger house to accommodate it. So really, that shedding that the caterpillars do is not shedding. It's, it's just coping with the acquisition, you could say. But they do that about five times. They shed themselves. Um, so that's the, the feeding situation. The defense. The, um, they defend themselves. Of course, we all do. We all are vulnerable on, the, on this earth to predators. The main predators, I think, that we need to be worried about, there's two main predators, unless you go wandering through the savannah and you fall foul of a tiger or you jump into a lake with, a, with sharks and um, crocodiles in it. Um, but the main predators to us are the biggest and the smallest. The, the, the big predator that's uh, our worst enemy is ourselves. That most, we are the worst threat to ourselves. We are most likely to destroy each other in war and in, in crime. Um, or the little ones, the viruses and things that will get us, and they're evolving as fast as we are. So, um, so it's not to say, you know, I'm not a pacifist. I'd like to say I'm not, I am, but I'm not really. Sometimes you have to struggle for things. And um, uh, so defense is necessary. How do the caterpillars do it? Uh, well, first of all, by disguise and deception. They pretend to be something they're not. They disguise themselves as twigs, for instance, or whatever. Uh, to deceive um, a potential predator. So there's a lot of disguising and deception goes on in our world as well. Then there's deterrence. They, they can, as all animals do, most animals can make themselves look fierce and, uh, and threatening, and, and caterpillars can do that, deterring other predators by pretending to be big and spiky and bristly and not something you'd want for lunch. So they deter attacks by puffing themselves up like that. It brings to mind certain politicians. I don't know whether it <laughs> should. Be careful what you say. <laughs> not this side of the Atlantic, although we've got our share too. And the, um, the, the third thing is preemptive strike. It get the enemy before they even think about getting you. And some caterpillars can do that by using stinging things and nasty poisonous venom that they spurt out and that kind of thing. So very similar, really, to our ways of defense, too. And I'm not saying we should dismantle our whole defense strategies at all. I'm just saying this is, there, is a, there is a resemblance here. And as I've said before, the, um, the uncontrolled, uh, the, the dissent, the whole dissent question. Um, dissent is a problem for government, certainly, and for regimes. And so, they, so dissent generally is suppressed. Um, I saw it most clearly in my own lifetime as when I, I lived for a while in um, quite a long time in, in Germany, in Berlin, <clears throat> and just on the border, in the west, but only just in the west. We were f within the 50-meter zone of the wall, of the Berlin Wall, when it was still standing. And 
and I had lot, I've got lots of connections with, um, through family and friends of, um, with people who are from the East. In fact, more connections with the f- people from the former East Germany than the former West. And so, you know, I saw some of the ways in which dissent was suppressed under the communist regime um, by veiled threats, you know. Um, Unless you break off connections with your, let's say somebody's child has has gone to the West, has has defected to the West, the parents might be penalised for that by being held back in their work, not being given any promotion or generally having life made a bit heavy for them, a bit miserable for them, um, by um, small-time espionage on each other are using the threats. They say that one in six people in the former East Germany were informers, low-grade informers. And although that sounds terrible, I can understand it because I know what happened. You know, you've got a child who's about to go to university, for instance, and that won't happen unless you... um, That will be blocked unless you provide a certain amount of information about what your neighbours are doing. Are they watching Western television? Are they... that kind of thing. And, that, and watching television was a big deal. They started in the nurseries, in the kindergartens with, with children. Can you, when they start to tell the time, can you describe the clock? Have you seen the television clock, for instance? And a child would say, oh yeah, can you draw a picture of it? You know? And if it was a round, I don't know which way around it was, but the West, Western television had a round clock and Eastern television had a square clock, let's say. It may have been the other way around. And depending on what the child said about the clock on the television, the secret police would be keeping an eye on that family because they were watching Western television. It's that kind of thing. It's um, suppressing dissent is, is, very, is, is commonly done. And that's what the caterpillar's immune system does. It sees these imaginal cells as potential dissenters. They're marching to a different drumbeat. So we need to watch them. They're somehow not on the same path that we are. Um, so... Now, it's easy to point the finger to other countries. I also want to just mention what happens to dissenters in this country. I'm not going to mention exactly what happens, but being a dissenter, even in a mild democratic way in this country at the moment, is not always easy, especially if you live among people whose general opinion differs from your own political opinion. And there are areas of this country that I can go to and feel, oh, I can breathe again. And one of them is Scotland, actually, and one of them is London. And my own area where I actually live is be careful. Just don't go there. Don't have that discussion. That's all I'll say. But um, we we should never think that the suppression of dissent is something that only happens in other countries. Um, But that's what happens in the caterpillar world. That raises other questions. Um, uncontrolled growth, is, is that an ethical aspiration, actually? Um, back in, 70, in the 70s, I'm going to stop in a minute, um, there was a book published called Limits to Growth. I don't know if any of you remember it. And it suggested that it's not, you can't just keep on growing and growing and growing forever. Now, whether that, I know that there are other voices that say you can, and I'm not an economist, so I honestly don't know. But I just wonder, we measure everything by our annual growth rates. Um, is that growth coming at the expense of other parts of the planet? 
or other people, or other people in our own society? I don't know. But I do remember that um, there, are many, there are several parables uh, in the gospel about what happens if you hoard too much. You know, you, you end up, you remember the, the, the man who kept hoarding and hoarding and had to build bigger barns and bigger barns to keep all his stuff he'd hoarded and grown. And, um, and eventually, I don't know, along, this is mixing metaphors seriously, but along comes the big bad wolf and blows the barn over, that kind of thing. Um, I, I just raise that question. Is, uh, do we, is it really the right story to be living by that we must grow, um, even at the expense of quality of life? Because people are um, certainly in some societies, and I think ours is one of them, those who have work are being expected to work more and more and more endlessly, more and more hours, more and more productivity. We're always being told we're not productive enough. But how do you, you, you can spin that wheel out of control until something snaps? I, I don't really, I'm not convinced that um, uncontrolled growth is, is the way to go. So, and eventually, and I'll stop with this, and then we'll, we'll move on um, after a little break. There's a feeling of general discontent in Caterpillar World. Caterpillar World is fed up. I described this. I had fun writing this part of the book because it is fanciful. But, you know, the caterpillars start to complain to each other and say, this is awful. You know, they tell us we've got the, the, strongest, um, we're the strongest economy in the forest. And yet there's potholes in all the pathways. The schools are closing. We can't get to the doctor. We can't. The library's closed. Does it sound familiar? Um, they generally, uh, uh, you could say the two words that, they, that might, might characterize this phase is they have had enough, they are fed up. They've had enough of the gluttony, they've had enough of living like there was no tomorrow except just to eat more and more leaves. They're fed up, they've actually reached the point of having enough. They're not going to shed anymore, something else is going to happen. And they won't like it when it does, but... They're fed up, they've had enough. Those are the words that I've heard, and we've all heard, countless times over the last five years, two years, that people here in our country are fed up, they've had enough, they're not being listened to, they've, they've had enough of the government telling us everything's wonderful when everybody can see this is not, it's chaotic. Uh, they've had enough of strong and stable. <laughs> Sorry. Um, they've, they're fed up with the way things are generally. And that discontent, then, fortunately, we're phlegmatic creatures here in these islands. Otherwise, there might have been civil unrest over the last two years, I think. Um, so the caterpillars are fed up. They've had enough. They, as they see it, the services are degrading. That means their own, their own cells are disintegrating. There's something bad going on in the caterpillar world. And there's a mismatch between, well, for us anyway, not for them, there's a mismatch between what we're told and what we observe. And there's a breakdown of trust. And that leads to a kind of winding down into a horrible mess, a gloopy soup, which is nothing like a caterpillar and nothing like a butterfly. And we'll just look at the gloopy soup briefly. When I started to write this material around the butterfly and stuff, um, talking to DLT, the editor, about it, I knew that I wanted to tell the story of the imaginal cell because that's key to it. And, and yet also 
it raises questions of what do you do in practice about this? So, because it's no use, every metaphor is wonderful, but metaphors have to be made real. And, um, and, and I, when I started to write the story from the point of view of the imaginal cell, which is what turned into Hidden Wings, which is the first of the two books, actually, it, it, takes, it, goes, it tells the inside story as if it were being narrated by the Im imaginal cell. As some of it's quite a bit lighthearted, some of it's quite tongue-in-cheek, but, but it's not. It, isn't, it is deeply serious as well. Because it's, so that's what Hidden Wings is. It tells, tells you what your imaginal cell is doing, you know, it, what, what this is all about, the imaginal cell. But then I needed to say, well, what does it mean? How do you work it out in practice? And to have put all that on top of this story, this sort of stands alone as, as a story of, of the imaginal cell, going through the various stages of transformation and how that feels. Um, and some, you know, what does it feel to be a butterfly that can't tell her grandchildren that they're going to be butterflies because she's flying in a bigger story? Uh, what does it feel to be a caterpillar that's got no sense of any bigger story, and especially with these other funny cells around that don't seem to fit? What does it feel like to be a, a cell that doesn't fit? That's the, what's covered in Hidden Wings. And then asking, well, what do we do? How can we live this in practice? And it was a little bit shaped by DLT wanting it to have five observable sections that people could do. They, they said in Lent, I said, this isn't a religious book, you know, forget Lent. But, but sometimes groups do, um, do want something that they can structure. It can be used as a group, obviously, Born to Fly can. Um, so people could look at one or more of those, one of those sections over a month or more, whatever. So that's the sort of thinking behind that. But then I realized there's other things that you need in preparation for that. And one of them is a, a very potted introduction to Teilhard de Chardin's uh, thinking on spiritual evolution. Uh, one is something on story and how the story changes. The story changes between the, when you're a caterpillar, you live by a different story than when you're a butterfly. And uh, I, this was very much inspired by Harari's book, uh, Sapiens, if you've come across it, Sapiens and Homo Deus, but especially Sapiens, when he talks about the power of story and how stories actually shape us and our ways of controlling us, uh, for good or ill. Um, we live by certain stories, and, and sometimes we have to change those stories. You can't, for instance, I can't... I can't relate to my daughter now, she's 36, um, in the way that I, that I can't use the same story that I did when she was a toddler or a teenager. Uh, our stories have to change and grow. And sometimes the stories can change suddenly and sometimes they change over time. And some are timeless, some stories don't change, I think. And the one that comes to mind that changed quickly, since I'm talking about stories, is um, the, the famous uh, First World War Christmas story, when the, um, there was a, um, an armistice for the, or a ceasefire over, just over Christmas, and the, the soldiers on opposing in opposing trenches along the lines started, I think, I think it began with carol singing, so they heard the German soldiers singing Stille Nacht, and, and they started off with, whatever they sang, and then ever so 
tentatively, they stuck their heads above the parapets and came out of the trenches. And the story at that point changed from these are German stroke British soldiers and they're all bad, so kill them, to actually, we're all guys out here in a muddy field and what we really want to do is play a game of football. And they played football in the, in the no man's land. And they exchanged gifts and uh, you know, bits of chocolate or a cigarette or whatever they had. And that, if that had continued, it would have changed the story big time. It would, have, it would have prevented the Second World War, never mind the First, because the Second World War followed on from the First, basically. And so what a change if that had been allowed, if that fraternization had continued, it would have totally changed the story. And some, ch some stories need to be changed. Some are misleading, some are out of date, but some are timeless. So... Um, uh, I, I, this isn't really about stories, so if, if there's time before lunch, I'll, I might come back to stories. But, but that's one of the things I look at in Born to Fly. And then also the question of um, what kind of a future do we really desire? Does anybody really seriously think about, actually, I can, make, I, I can contribute to making our future? Very few people think like that. Most of us live reactively from day to day, just coping. And, and there's good reason for that. Many people have to just live like that. But for those of us who have been blessed with enough to eat and enough an education to think about these things and each other to talk to about these things, perhaps we should be having conversations about what future do we really desire. It's, a, it's been a big topic, of course, in this country and, and a, a, a very valid topic. What kind of future do we want for our country? But that sits in a bigger story as well. What kind of a future for the world? And if my country's future clashes with the rest of the world's future, we would have to, you know, that would cause some, one would have to think about that. Um, so what kind of a future do we want? That's something I, I look at in, in the first part of Born to Fly. And then um, if, if the future is being shaped partly at least by our choices, and I, mean, I don't mean our choices in the, uh, in the elections just, I mean our day-to-day -day choices, choosing the more life-giving, the more loving way to be in any particular situation, um, that, that seems to me the material that changes the world. And so there's a little section on choosing, discernment is a big word for it. And then it goes into the five sections of following through the process of um, the egg, the caterpillar, the chrysalis and the butterfly and, and what's involved in that in, in terms of how it is for us. So Born to Fly is the workbook really. It does repeat some of, it, it reminds readers who didn't know about imaginal cells that this is what the basis is, but it doesn't tell the story. The, the story of the imaginal cell is in Hidden Wings. The workbook, if you like, is in Born um, to Fly, just so you know. It's, it's not obvious. There really should have been one book, but it would have been a bit too big and cumbersome and so publishers in their infinite wisdom decided to uh, do it differently. So that's the background. So we've, we've got this fed-upness setting in. And fed-upness is the name of the game, I think, in, in the world perhaps generally, but specifically, and this is what triggered me to write the book in the first place, particularly in the UK because of the referendum and in the US because of the election of Donald Trump. There's the, there was a fed-upness 
that led to both of those outcomes in the first place. And the, the fed-upness continues because the outcome has completely divided two big nations. Well, one little nation and one big nation. Um, the outcome of both of those electoral events has been massively divisive. And there's no really obvious signs that those divisions will heal. In, uh, in the US, I've got friends in the US that were dreading Thanksgiving because whole swathes of the family were not speaking to whole other swathes of the family. And they didn't know how they were going to get through Thanksgiving. And it's that kind of thing. And it's, it's here, too, on a, perhaps a smaller scale. But um, uh, So uh, that's what triggered me to write the books in the first place, because I needed some kind of cathartic outlet for what was going on in my head. I can remember where I was. Can you remember where you were when you heard the outcome of the American election? Yes. It's one of those events that you don't forget. Um, I was on platform six of Cruise Station. <laughs> I'd, I'd heard, I knew which way it was heading because I'd been listening in through the night. But um, yeah, who knows whether it's just a blip or whether it's a sign of things to come. But a direction, a general direction that puts me and my tribe first at the expense of, of the, the greater, the bigger story. I think is the wrong direction spiritually. So it's, it's a spiritual choice that, um, because we we're not we can't live in tribes anymore. We're we're so mixed up. We are interdependent, and so that's the background of the books. Just so so you get some kind of sense of that. But I'm not here to sell books, and I'm not selling books. Somebody else is selling books. I, I, books for me are like babies. I give birth to them, and then I let somebody else bring them up. <laughs> but. Um, so what happens in the, the there's two there's a double dynamic going on, and I, I sense that that's around for us too, and that's that when the caterpillar world is winding down, and it really is winding down because they're disintegrating. The caterpillar will soon be no more. It's literally disintegrating. Um, it's so it's the whole world is disintegrating with it. Its whole world. But at the same time that something is winding down, uh, uh, something else is waking up. And literally waking up, because the imaginal cells are no longer being drenched with juvenile hormone, because the immune system isn't active anymore. So they're wake they are quite literally waking up. And I wonder where we see that, that double dynamic going on in our world today. A lot of it, yeah, I think there is. There's, the, the winding down is obvious. I mean, things are just, I don't know how they dare stand there and say that everything's good and we've got this strong economy when everybody knows that the, the local services are going from bad to worse. It's simply the case. Um, but, um, but what's waking up is the big question. And the, the waking up is us, is, um, and how can we nourish what's waking up that's, that's moving towards more, a more human humanity, a better version of who we can be? How can we nourish the, the, those, that, wake, that awakening? And, but at the same time, being aware of the dark side. Because wherever a light shines, there's always going to, it'll cast a shadow. Social media is, is a classic example, I think. The, Social media is broadened out into communication and interdependence massively. So something that happens is immediately transferred around the world. Um, and 
a lot of that is really good. It's inspirational stories, it's support, it's crowdfunding, it's stuff like that that people are saying, oh, that sounds terrible, I'd like to support that person. All sorts of really, really good things are happening through social media. The, the dark side, as we know, is the, um, the possibility of it being used for cyberbullying and, and, and transmitting what should be thought out political statements, not 19-word Twitter bits by things. That meant the thought of doing politics by Twitter strikes me. The very word Twitter strikes me as ludicrous. When, I first, when it first came out, I remember it first coming out, um, tweets and Twitters struck me as being so lightweight that you wouldn't take them seriously. Clearly, that people do take them seriously now, and, and it's a serious method of, of communication. But um, as, as a matter of interest, in terms of um, when things started to be called what they are called, I, I wonder if it's just me, but I remember a time when I was a child and a teenager and a young adult that this country was not known as the UK. It was known as Britain. If people asked you where you came from, you'd say Britain or Great Britain or, or one of the component nations. But, and I think UK came in somewhere along the line. It's interesting. I don't know. I don't suppose it matters. But another word that does matter, and this is diverging a bit, that has changed over the last 40 years or so is the word debt. The word debt when I was a child, used to mean something you would avoid at all costs because it meant bad news. And then it was changed and it became credit. And credit is something that you're worthy of. That it's a good thing, allegedly. And I once raised this, this comment in a, in a retreat, and there was a banker in the retreat, on the retreat and he actually said, shared with us all. Now, I, I've got no way of verifying whether what he said was true. But he said, but Margaret, that was a, a deliberate decision by the banks. And I thought, wow, how is our language being used to manipulate us as well? Because that has had massive repercussions. Turning debt into something that sounds good, like credit, has caused the credit crunch and the actually the recession. But look, I don't know anything about economics, but. Um, I just, I'm interested in how language is used sometimes. For instance, um, quantitative easing means printing money, which is not, it's a very naughty thing to do. Um, what's that word that they use for transporting people that you can't torture because your country doesn't do torture to some country where you can do it? Oh, just, rendition. Yes, thank you. Extraordinary rendition. What kind of words are these? Anyway, I digress. It's just to say that the story changes in the chrysalis. The, sto the caterpillar story doesn't work anymore. It's not eat, eat every leaf in the forest. It's not defend yourself at all costs. It's going to be something else, but they don't yet know what that something else is. So the meltdown starts in the into the chrysalis. But remember that the imaginal cells are just waking up. And while everything else is going into this really nasty gunge, they say if you open up a chrysalis, you would, I've never done that, um, you would see um, just this nasty mess, inky mess. It's, you would never say it was a caterpillar or would be a butterfly. Uh, so for the caterpillar cells, it's that horrible disintegration. 
But what is it for the imaginal cells, that awakening to something else, something that they could be? And what they do, as I mentioned earlier, is they, because all the opposition has been lifted, they're not oppressed as they were, they begin to recognize there are many of them. And they then realize that they're all resonating on the same wavelength. Now, that doesn't mean we all have to go inside the same church and, God forbid, the same denomination or anything, or even the same faith tradition. But people who are awakening to their spiritual, the imaginal cell within them, are, are also increasingly recognizing the resonance with others who are on the journey. And, uh, and people will join the journey. Others will wake up. It's only a, a, a matter of, as many spiritual gurus have said to us, it's a matter of awakening and enlightenment. It's not a selective thing, at least I would suggest. It's not a selective thing that some people are going to get the, the uh, become awakened and some are just destined to disintegrate into caterpillars. That's the old heaven and hell distinction. I, I don't, that doesn't work for me. I would suggest there's, there's a, something within everyone, every human heart that is, is capable of awakening to the fullness of who he or she can be. Um, and that's happening. That's what the awakening is. Where do we see it now? I think we see it a lot. There's, there's a lot of awakening going on around the world in different faith traditions. And, and of course, then there's the opposition to that, also very visible from the fundamentalist kind of position in, in all faith traditions, perhaps. I can only really speak from my, my own. Um, but it's a very real phenomenon, and I think we, we are graced to be part of that phenomenon, that awakening. So um, then another interesting thing happens in the Christmas is that the, um, you could say, swords turn into plowshares. Remember, we've, now we've got the, the imaginal cells gradually realizing there's more of them and grouping together. They're coming together. Uh, that, uh, I'll come back to the swords and plowshares. That happened, to go back to the East German thing, um, when, you know, the time of Gorbachev and the, the, the loosening of the... Um, the oppression of the Soviet rule over Eastern Europe, the, um, the way that cells began to gather, imaginal cells who were saying in East Germany, I've heard them many times say it, this isn't what we want. They call us the People's Democratic Republic, but we're not. First of all, it's not democratic, and it's not we're the people, and this isn't what we want. There was one famous time when they went in, in the German state opera, and they were um, at, the, at the point when, I don't know now which opera it's in, I should do, the uh, March of the Hebrew Slaves, the Song of the Hebrew Slaves. Which opera is it? Is it Nabucco? Uh, no, it wasn't Wagner, I don't think. But it's Verdi, yes, Nabucco, I think it is, is it? Nabucco, yeah. It, it doesn't matter, but in this, op this opera was being performed. And when the, the chorus of the Hebrew Slaves was sung, Everybody stood in silence and just stood in protest. This is us, you know. Um, and then people began to gather in, actually mainly in church halls, in small numbers, to say, this isn't how we want it to be. But it was not an armed insurrection at all. There was no bloodshed in, in, uh, in Germany or in almost any of the, the Eastern Bloc countries. 
but it was about people gathering together to recognize that there's a different resonance going on um, and that we must group together and talk about how we want the future to be. And out of those gatherings came eventually the, 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 the turnaround, helped, of course, by uh, senior management in, in the Soviet Union, I know, and, and elsewhere. There's, everybody has a claim. I realized Reagan claims to have brought down the Berlin Wall, and um, one of ours did, claims to, and somebody says it was the Pope and other people, but I think Gorbachev played a very big part, and he was the completely unlikely candidate, wasn't he, to, um, you know, who's an atheist, he didn't do this kind of thing, but he, anyway, it happened. Um, and let's not imagine that this can't happen in our lifetime. I live, when I lived in Berlin, people often asked me, did I think the Berlin Wall would come down? And I always used to say, well, of course, all human constructions come down eventually. But we all said at that time, living in Berlin, we were like caterpillars. We all said, but not in our lifetime. It was unimaginable. And then suddenly, from one day to the next, it, it, it just like a pack of, like a domino pack thing. So um, the sorting to plowshares is also very interesting in that the, the cells, the, cater the normal caterpillar cells, not the Im imaginal cells, disintegrate into a mess. But they themselves become the nourishment to help the imaginal cells to grow. Now, I know that that's not a, a, a choice that the caterpillar cells make, but it's, it's, a, it's a kind of sign for me of the worst things that, that opposes can actually become, the opposition in humanity can become um, a cooperation that takes us forward. And really, it's only cooperation that will take us forward, I think. Kept working together, not by suppressing individual groups or, or opinions, but somehow in a meltdown. And you see, I mean, people say, I wasn't there myself, but they say that in the Second World War, Britain pulled together like no other time. And in times of hardship, there's no doubt that people uh, overcome their individual tribal bits and they work together for, for good. So um, this is, this is a, an intention. It's not an intentional thing in the caterpillar, but it's what happens. What would that mean for us? I was in, the, in a place in Minnesota some years ago, and I stayed with a family where the, the, the father of the family was a teacher in a high school in a deprived area of Minneapolis. And he was telling me about a thing that he did with these these youngsters who really didn't want to be in school at all. And he ran an after-school club for them. And it was connected, to, it was about robotics, and they were all interested in robotics. And um, he, he organized this thing, and it, he, he was affiliated with some international, I can't remember the name, or I don't think I ever knew the name, um, an international competition for uh, young people designing robotics. And obviously, they were really interested in them. They were very keen, and it was a way for him to relate to them. But then he went on to tell me that this international competition had a number of prizes, three or four main prizes, uh, one of which was for the best robot, as you would expect, the, the team that had designed the best robot. But the main prize that they all were really aiming for was the prize that went to the team that showed the most willingness 
to help another team when they got stuck with their design. And I thought, my goodness, what a breakthrough. And because it was such a move away from raw competition towards cooperation, <coughs> they actually coined a, a name for it. They called it cooperation. And I thought that was very telling. Um, reminded me of the story of the, uh, there's a, a, a story that was, uh, it was put on the internet. It was one of those things that went viral at the time. A, a school where children, children with various physical and, and educational uh, challenges were integrated in the main school. But when it came to sports day, they, they couldn't put the, uh, they couldn't expect the uh, physically challenged children to run alongside the, the ones who were all their faculties. And, um, and so they had a special race, special races for children with various physical challenges. And they, it came time, first they ran all the normal races and, and the children got their first, second and third ribbons and everybody cheered them and, and applauded them and everybody was happy. And then came the special race and the starter gun went off and the children set off along the track. And halfway along the track, one of them fell over. And without any hesitation, every child in the race turned back to help the child that had fallen. They picked up the child that had fallen, they linked hands, and they all ran together and crossed the finishing line together. And the teachers and the parents gave them a standing ovation because they'd shown them it, what, that it's more important than winning is to be human. What, what had it taught them? And it was such a moving story. Maybe children have a lot to teach us. So, um, yeah, in the chrysalis, Another thing to say about the chrysalis, but we'll look at the inside the chrysalis in a, in a, uh, after, after lunch. Um, the, if you see a chrysalis hanging on a tree, it looks like last year's autumn leaf, or some of them do. They, they vary, of course. But, you know, they look pretty dead, and they hang there. But actually, the maximum expenditure of energy is going on in the chrysalis, um, in the... And that energy, just think, think of all the energy we use in our caterpillar world. All the energy that raising children, teaching them, um, inventing the latest smartphone, building things, doing all the energy, making symphonies, going on treks, all the energy that people use. Energy, it's the second law of thermodynamics says, can't be destroyed or created. That energy goes somewhere. Energy flows, or it either is transformed or it flows somewhere. It doesn't get destroyed. So where does that energy go in the chrysalis? All that energy of keeping themselves going through the forest, eating all those leaves, defending themselves, is all being transformed inside the chrysalis, not by themselves, but by something much greater than themselves. So what about the, you know, trusting that the chrysalis, far from being a dead place, is actually a, a very living place. It's a maximum energy expenditure. But it's a nasty place to be. So we'll look at the chrysalis after lunch. I thought that just before lunch, by way of light relief, I'd read you just this little extract. Um, because I, I suddenly, when I was writing, I suddenly remembered moths. And um, now, I've got nothing against moths, and this is not meant to be an anti-moth thing at all. Moths are wonderful creatures, um, so don't take it that way, but it's used as a metaphor. Um, and I'll just um, 
read you this, this bit. When we fell off the edge of the cliff, that is when we fell off the edge of being caterpillars and went into this disintegration, we found ourselves in the dark, a deep and frightening dark. With hindsight, we can see that the darkness would prove to be a good place for us because this is where the transformation energy would be released. But we can't let the lights go out without mentioning one of the skeletons in the caterpillar cupboard, Cousin Moth. I guess most families have a relative that they don't speak about much. The caterpillar family is no exception. Cousin Moth is our guy in the cupboard. But in fairness, I ought to bring him into our story, if only as a warning to our human cousins. Then it, I'll miss this paragraph out because it talks about the moth ma mainly flying by night and the butterflies mainly by day and that moths tend to be um, drab, uh, not all of them, and butterflies are brighter in colour. Now don't get me wrong, not all moths are bad news and some moths are very beautiful, but in general they do tend to be destructive. Eating human clothes, for example, which doesn't make them popular with that sector of creation. Moth has another unfortunate habit, and this is very much the kind of thing that doesn't come up in conversation around the table over Christmas dinner. He can be self-destructive. We've never worked out quite why this is. Uh, he had much the same childhood as the rest of us, no obvious trauma, etc. And it goes on a bit about the differences, preferring night flying, etc. But um, he, so he's... A, he's preference for night flying. The consequence, I am mortified to report, is disastrous. Some of those lesser lights that he goes after um, turn out to be candles, bonfires, or light bulbs. Results, grilled moth. It's a bit embarrassing to reveal this aspect of our story, but I do so because I think it has a bearing on how we react to some of the out-of-control feelings we experience when the world turns upside down which is what it does in the chrysalis, actually. We can choose whether we hold ourselves steady in the darkness, allowing the darkness to do this, the Holy Spirit to do its work in the heart of the chaos, um, and trying to cooperate with the unfolding new pattern of how things shall become. Or we can choose the knee-jerk reaction, letting our fear and anger drive our actions. They say that in times of chaotic breakdown, we reach bifurcation points, which is science speak for forks in the road. At these points, we have to make big choices about how we want the future to be. Those of us who are becoming butterflies will choose to wait inside the chrysalis, changing daily until we're ready to emerge into the sunlight of a whole new existence. Those, this isn't really fair to moths at all, but it applies to some humans. Those who are becoming moths may let desperation drive them to an untimely end. Though it has to be said that it isn't a binary division like that. Etc. There are butterflies who fly by night and moths who explore the world by day. And by no means all moths are destructive of your clothes or of themselves. We're hearing on Caterpillar Web, that's an invention of mine, that, uh, that our human cousins show similar tendencies. Some decide in times of chaos to hang on in there and cooperate with the Holy Spirit towards a new way of becoming uh, human. Um, uh, and others think short-term and let their fear dictate their policies, sometimes with very damaging results. And I guess most of them are a bit of a mixture of both of these attitudes. It's worth taking time to observe our reactions because one path will lead to life in greater fullness and the other is likely to lead, lead to an unplanned, unwanted barbecue in which we are the main dish. 
Because of the moth's frenzied behaviour, an irrational attraction towards the flame might serve as a warning of what can happen when frustration and need, or even anger and desperation, take over and seize control of your choices and actions and your votes. You may find that you have been flirting with a wolf pretending to be your dear old granny. But when the vote is cast, it will be too late to escape from the claws and the jaws that never meant well with you in the first place and set out to deceive you from the start. Uh, remembering co old Cousin Moth has given me pause for thought. He's not a family member we normally mention in Caterpillar World, but just look at the wisdom he's brought us without ever intending to. Be warned, he flutters. The flame that seduces you does not usually mean well with you. Check out your flight path before you head towards its light and heat. What is really driving you? Need? Anger? Desperation? These are all allies of flame, conspiring together for your destruction. Human cousins, please beware. All you have shared with us in the chat room indicates there's a great deal of need in your world. Many of you have no job, or if you do, the pay is barely enough to manage on. Many of you have no home. The sleeping bags in the doorways of your public buildings tell a terrible story. Many more of you have no hope left. There's a smell of desperation in the air, plenty of need. No surprise that there's also plenty of anger, plenty of desperation. Beware, when there's nothing left to lose, you are in grave danger of seduction by Mistress Flame. You will forget the bigger picture and will hit back in the only way you know how, only to discover too late that the one you have hit is yourself. It doesn't have to end in, in ashes. I, I, the bit I missed out was about fireflies who um, carry the light and the fire with them and bring lights in a different way. The fireflies carry the potential for enlightenment within them, just as we carry the future butterfly in our imaginal selves. What are you carrying in yours? When the fire is burning down and the glow of the last embers is fading, where do the sparks go? The enlightenment you seek may be within you to be released when all your certainties burn down to guide your journey to the skies. Let's start with a bit of deep theology. Sure, that's just what you need after lunch, isn't it? Yeah. And it's, what, it's some theology that we learnt when we were preschool. And it's the story of Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Sounds like the most recent meeting at Chequers, really, doesn't it? Um, Humpty's been very accident-prone in our times. Humpty's fallen off the wall of stable climate. Humpty's fallen off the wall of stable politics. Humpty's fallen off Wall Street, even. So what have we got? We've got a mess. A, a real mess. We've got broken eggshells everywhere, an egg that you can't even make an omelette with because it's riddled with eggshells. And <clears throat> what, we, what are we going to do with this mess? So along come all the experts <clears throat> and um, try and put Humpty together again. So the, the climate experts, rightly, we need them, come along and try and restabilize the climate. The, um, econ the economists come along and try and put the uh, world economy back to how it was before it fell apart. And the politicians try and put the, the, our systems back together. 
And the cardinals come along and try and put the church back together, and for Catholics especially, as it was before Vatican II, um, <clears throat> try and putting things back together. And it doesn't work. If you've ever tried to reassemble a broken egg, it doesn't work. And what I just want to share with you at the beginning of this afternoon is, yeah, the egg has broken. We've got a mess. We have got a lot of broken shards and mess around in all kinds of ways. But why? What, what, was, the sh what was the breaking about? And that's the key question for me. Did it break just because it was um, because something got, 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 went wrong? Or did it break because it's hatching? And if it's hatching, the question then is, where would we put our energy into trying to put the thing back together to how it was as we thought it would stay forever before it broke? Or will we put our energy into trying to nourish the chick that's coming out of that broken egg, breaking egg? I believe that chaotic breakdown is a time of, of new, new life beginning. And you see that everywhere. There's not time to go into it really here, but <clears throat> this afternoon. But you see it in the, um, in the scripture story. In the beginning, the spirit hovers over chaos, not order. So chaos is something that we dread. We lose control in chaos. We, we, we don't know what's happening. We, we feel all over the place. We've got no, land, no signpost, no nothing, nothing to hold on to, the, the ground shifting under our feet. Um, that doesn't sound like a good starting point, but it is the scriptural starting point for the chaos out of which new life emerges. And that, that's reflected in science as well, in chaos theory. In chaos theory, I don't know much about anything really, but um, it doesn't stop me standing here and spouting about it. <coughs> but um, chaos theory, I believe, says, well, two things that are really important to me. One is obvious to everybody that every so often ordered systems break down into disorder and disequilibrium. And we all know that. Just look at your desk on Friday and look at it, look how it is on Monday and then look at it on Friday. Look at your children's bedrooms. Everything disintegrates into um, disequilibrium. And Brian Cox does wonderful documentaries about just that. Um, but the, in, what really interests me about chaos theory is that, the, that in the heart of the chaotic breakdown, Something is working, and the physicists call it the strange attractor. Don't ask me what it is. I've no idea. But it's somehow a new pattern begins to emerge out of the very heart of the breakdown or the meltdown or the chaos. And, and it's, it's there. It's, you can prove it in the laboratory. You can see it in the equations. You can see it in Mandelbrot functions, things like that. Um, it's, it's simply there, and it's a scientific fact. So science is reflecting this. The whole story of the evolution of life on this planet reveals that when there's a breakdown of some sort, like a mass um, extinction, and there have been five of them so far, um, not only does, does something new emerge out of that mess that seems, when you're in it, to be the end of the world, but um, something new not only emerges and carries on business as usual, it carries on business a whole quantum leap further up the evolutionary story. Uh, there isn't time to go into the examples, but um, the, the most recent one was the dinosaur extinction. 
And it's bad news if you're a dinosaur, undoubtedly. There's always collateral damage. The, the closed systems, we're all closed systems. We all have a beginning and an end. And we don't survive these things physically necessarily, but spiritually the story evolves and moves to a higher plane. In the dinosaurs' extinction, that was the, um, the beginning of a whole radiation of mammal life which couldn't exist while the dinosaurs were clomping around over everything. So something new emerged out of that, and we're part of that great radiation. And just to go quickly back to scripture, the, um, the, the, the story of the, of the flood is fascinating at it, so many different levels. But the point really, one point I'll just pick out of it, that the ark, and it's a story, I mean, it's a powerful, deep story that speaks archetypally to across all cultures. It's probably a mem folk memory of a tsunami of some sort back in the day, but, but it's got such powerful spiritual truth in it, although let's, let's, let's be careful with the literal truth of the ark. But the ark, the story tells us, pictures up at the end of the day at, at the top of a mountain. Now, at one level, that's obvious, because if you had massive inundation, and then eventually the waters recede, the first land to be exposed would be the highest land, clearly. But the ark fetches up, actually, at a higher level, because it's, it's found landfall at a higher level than it could have reached if there'd never been a flood. And that's very telling for me that, um, that the things that we think are so disastrous can have the potential to take us to a higher level than we would have got to if there hadn't been that disastrous event, that flood event in this case. There's all sorts of other things to reflect on on that story as well, like um, who gets to go in the ark? When I was seven, I was told that you, the ark was the church and you got to go in the ark by going to church. That was that, how you got saved. That was when I was seven. When I was eight or nine, I discovered that there were lots of different arks, some of which called themselves the one true ark. So that was a bit of a problem for my mind. And so it goes on. I, I don't see it as the saved in the boat and the rest floundering around in the ocean. I would see it more like what do we take into the future? What matters most? More like the seed potatoes that you don't eat because you're going to plant them next spring for the next crop. What the animals in the ark were kind of the beginning of a new, a new beginning um, with, with the life forms that, that would populate the planet. Um, it's also a bit like sourdough bread. If you make sourdough bread, you keep a little bit of the dough back which becomes the starter for the next batch. So what goes in the ark matters. What are we going to take forward? What qualities of being human, the spiritual qualities, spiritual values, do we most need to take forward um, into the future? Um, and, well, there's, I, won't, I won't go on about the ark. I can get quite carried away by... Um, by Noah's Ark. My, my daughter once, when I was going on about it, said, and when your teenage daughter says this to you, you have to worry. She says, Mum, are you on something? <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So, but I think the, the, some of the Old Testament stories are absolutely fantastic. They're so full of deep truth and meaning. I love them. As long as you don't get into that literal mindset and start to ask, were there any woodpeckers on board? For goodness sake, you know, that, that would chew away at the infrastructure. That there are people who write theses on stuff like that, you know. Oh, just don't be so literal. So um, another... Another scripture story, though, that that's resonates a lot with me on this topic is, is it the Pool of Siloam, where the, um, the people are waiting for the angel to stir the waters? And the, the story that they've been told is that when the angel stirs the waters, the first one to get in will be healed. I remember having a very powerful prayer experience with that once, when somebody was asking me for help, and... Um, uh, I didn't want to know. It was the, he wanted some help with meditation and prayer and stuff. And I felt that he was hostile and he was going to rubbish it. But this was a long time ago. Anyway, he was asking me for help, and I was a bit reluctant, shall we say. But I did help him, and um, he went, you know, I, I tried to help him get into scriptural prayer. But, and he asked me to go with him to the church, and I, I didn't want to do that either, but I did. So I'm sitting at the back of the church. And the, um, the person in question was sitting at the front. So I was as far away as I could get. And then I get this little tweak on my ear from the Holy Spirit. What about you, Margaret? Aren't you going to pray? Yeah, of course I am. Give me a break. I've only just arrived kind of thing. So, yeah, okay, what will I pray about? The Holy Spirit tweaks my ear again and says, what about what you just given to him? Because I'd offered him the pool of Siloam with all these people who've been sitting there for years and couldn't get into the water. So why not? So I did. So the, the scene was this, you know, there's me sitting on a grassy bank watching these people, not involved, just watching. And uh, Jesus comes and sits next to me on this grassy bank. And, and we sit in companionable silence until he says to me, um, what are they doing here? So I said, they're waiting for the angel to stir the waters and then the first one in, they believe, will be healed thinking to myself, I would have expected you to know that, you know, but anyway. <laughs> and um, so another silence, and then he says, what's wrong with them all? So I said, well, it says in the gospel, which we assume you had a hand in, um, that some of them are blind and some of them are crippled. All right. Another silence. And then he says, turned to me and said, they're all in imaginative prayer, this is. Um, how are they going to get into the water? By this time, I was getting impatient. You can get impatient with God. It's okay. I said, look, you know, is, is this my problem? <laughs> I don't know. The blind people won't see when the waters are stirred, and the crippled will see but won't be able to move. <laughs> so what are you going to do about that, you know, kind of thing? And then there was this wry smile, and then the words came, ah, so it's a two-man job, is it? Well, it was like I'd been shot through the chest. I, oh, gosh. I really needed to hear that, you know? This man needed help. And there was me being reluctant. So, but the, the reason for sharing that is the, the pool of Siloam, the, the healing happens in, in the parable, or in the healing miracle, the healing happens when you enter the turbulent waters. What does that say to us now, in our times? We are sitting 
around looking at the water, the turbulent waters, every time we switch the television on or tune into the internet. Um, the, the gospel vision would seem to say, take the risk, plunge into the stormy waters, because only in the heart of the chaos will you find the, the new way forward. Um, but that's a really hard thing to do, and that's a chrysalis kind of a thing to do. And in the chrysalis, it's not pleasant at all. You are in the dark. You don't know, and that's where, where we, a lot of us feel we are. We're in the dark because we absolutely don't know what to do next. We never did know what we were going to do next. Our government doesn't know what it's going to do next. The, the rest of the continent doesn't know what it's going to do next. The world doesn't seem to know what to do about anything. There's a sense of just not having any way marks, any signposts. There is a real sense of being in the dark. But darkness, traditionally, is the place of the spirit as well. The dark night of the soul in Carmelite spirituality is the place where transformation happens. Things grow in the dark. Bulbs grow in the dark. Babies grow in the dark. The best ideas grow in the dark, usually when you've stopped trying to work out the answers. And then when you're in the dark and you let go, the, the solution turns up somehow. So um, it's dark. The, the, we feel helpless. Against the darkness, I think, another thing I'd say is we draw the curtains. We, metaphorically speaking, um, we, we draw the curtains against that darkness and we fill our lives up with the patterns on the curtains, really, I, I call it in the book, you know, whether it's uh, consumerism or something that distracts us from the dark. It's a bit like the distractions that fly around your head when you're trying to meditate, because the real core of it is the dark center, the silent, dark center. That's where the mystery is, and that's where we are touched by the mystery. But we try to cover it up. If we could trust ourselves to open the curtains and gaze into the dark, we would see a very different form of light. We would see the stars. Uh, we would see the distant vision. Um, so the, the real mystery lies beyond the, beyond the darkness, beyond the curtains, you could say. Uh, there's also an energy in the dark, all that caterpillar energy going somewhere transformation happening through and in that place. Just as the power, if, uh, if any of you have made the Ignatian spiritual exercises, you'll know that you would have, your director would have instructed you really to spend significant time in the tomb. If you did a 30-day experience, for instance, at St. Binos, one day of that is the tomb day. You always know when you're there that it's tomb day because packed lunches appear on the benches and people are sent off. There's no liturgies, there's no nothing, there's no meeting with the director. You just go out on your own and you spend time in the tomb. Um, that time, Jesus' time in the tomb, surely was chrysalis time when a meltdown of all the hopes and dreams, the Messiah who would liberate Israel and, and all, all that was that the other people had had, and perhaps even his own dreams, and certainly his life, and his trust in friendship and trust in justice and all the things that were broken down um, in the days leading up to Good Friday. Jesus himself lies in the chrysalis and then emerges as the Holy Spirit, which, is, which flows on and on through all the centuries. Uh, so that's truly a chrysalis space. Um, 
there is real massive energy going on in the chrysalis, but it's not ours. It's the, I believe it's the energy of the Holy Spirit. Um, and that transformation actually can only really happen in and through a total meltdown. And that's, that's a story that's, it, that's reflected in scripture, it's reflected in the natural world, it's reflected in, um, in science, and it's reflected in our own lives. How many of us have had times when everything went to pot? You just, you know, it's all gone wrong. And when you look back over time, you need hindsight for it. At the time, it just feels like a terrible mess. But over time, you can see, oh, but if it hadn't been for that, I wouldn't have discovered these resources that I never knew I had, for instance. Or I wouldn't, my path wouldn't have taken this new turn. Or new things open up. Not always. Forgive the language. I know we're in a civilized society here. I'm in the capital city, and I must be careful what I say. And I'm in a church. But nevertheless, I'll say, let's not over-spiritualize everything that goes wrong in our lives, because sometimes shit happens. And all you can do with this is say that it makes, makes good compost. Um, it, it's not true that every, or at least not in our time scale of thinking, that every bad thing is going to somehow work out okay. Um, it may well in a, on a bigger time scale, but not always. So let's not over-spiritualize it. But on balance, uh, when I look back over my life, when things went wrong, often through my own fault, but sometimes not through my own fault, um, I, there, there, was, there was a gift at the heart of it which emerged either as new understanding or new self-knowledge or um, new resources or resources I'd always had but didn't know I had or a new direction, new friends even. So um, in, in, all of, in, in everything that's going on in the chrysalis, that energy is what's actually happening and that's divine energy, that's sacred energy turning our efforts into something much bigger, much, much greater, that we can't begin to imagine. Um, and I told you about the, uh, how the, um, the whole, the, the cooperation starts to, to happen. But just allowing ourselves to look at what's going on in our world now and here in this country, there's a feeling of not knowing what we're doing, um, having no idea actually which direction it's going to go or that anybody knows which direction it even wanted to go. Um, we have also no sense of being able to change anything. We're, we really can't do... I met somebody recently, a very intelligent and thoughtful person, who said... Um, she wasn't from this country, but she said she's never voted and she never will. Now, I find that sad because we've just gone through remembering the battle it was to get the vote, for, for, for women especially. Um, so I do vote, but I live in a safe seat, uh, and it's safe. It's not my kind of safety that it's, <laughs> it's somebody who's not going to shift until he falls off his perch, and he's, in almost every respect, I would be completely at odds with his politics. So I've got no vote and, because I live in the wrong place, you know. So there's a sense of helplessness about it as well and um, just uh, and just hanging on in there, not being able to change anything much. And that's true of, of other aspects of our lives as well, I think. But I think maybe we've spent long enough in the chrysalis. Just to remember, though, that when the chrysalis, uh, when the last shedding happens and the caterpillar begins to shape itself into the chrysalis, 
it actually turns upside down and hangs. Just as, I mean, incidentally, to remember that that's what babies do just when they're preparing for birth. Most of them, not all, some of them come out bum first, but um, mostly babies turn around so that their head is directed into the birth canal. There's something about turning upside down that is a, a, a precursor to new birth, can be anyway. And our lives have been turned upside down in many ways over the recent years. Um, is that a precursor to birth? Can we trust that? And if so, can we do anything to, to help midwife this new life into being? <coughs> so, and so there we sit, locked up in the chrysalis. We can't move, we can't do anything. We just have to hang on in there. And how many of us have had that feeling at times in our lives when really all you can do is hang on in there? Um, one or two of us were talking over lunch about poor Teresa and how she's hanging on in there. And, you know, I have to say, I feel with her. She's hanging on in there against the odds. And you think, oh, what is going on in that chrysalis? Who knows? But, um, but eventually, and I, if you've not done this, I urge you to do it. Check out the internet and watch a, a butterfly emerging from the chrysalis. There's lots of YouTube clips and things of it happening. And you can see when it starts to, when it's getting to that point, you can see the colors coming through. Um, so you know, you know, it's a different, there are different kinds of butterflies and it? it's amazing just through that semi-transparent outer coating to see the colors, the new colors emerging. It makes me think, where do I see the new colors of, of a new creation, a new, uh, a, a new way of being fully human? Which I don't think is something we've invented. I think it's simply the New Testament coming to fruition. Because we haven't really taken on board the New Testament yet. We're still on a guilt trip, most of us. And didn't, isn't the New Testament about a love story? And how... How, how long is it going to take? How many more millennia before we embrace the love story and let go of the guilt trip? It's time to shed some of the stuff, some of the old stories. Because they may have been helpful at the time, just as you tell children, bad things will happen if you don't check both ways when you're crossing the road, you know, that kind of thing. It, 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 we, we needed these old stories, perhaps, and these old disciplines. But this is a time to emerge. In the New Testament, the, the whole story of Jesus' incarnation, it's about an invitation to embrace a different way. The times of, of, of blood sacrifice and atoning for sin are over. I came that you might have life, and life in all its fullness. How, how hard is it to get that? Um, but in many cases, some cases, the churches are teaching that, but not always. There's a lot of people still absolutely bought into the guilt trip. Like, how many of you felt guilty? And I know one of you did. I won't embarrass her by saying so. How many people felt guilty about taking a chocolate biscuit because it's Lent? <laughs> it's, it's not a guilt trip, and I think the gospel is very clear about that. So the first colors are shining through. Look, read the gospel and you see what those colors look like. Where do we find those colors reflecting back in our lives today? The, the color of compassion color of generosity, of, of um, an awareness, of responsiveness to other people's needs, especially the needs of other parts of, of the human family that are going through tough times. 
Um, all the gifts of the spirit, in other words, they show through, the colors do show through. Where, do, where are they showing through now? And if they are showing through, that's a sign that something is emerging from the chrysalis. It's not all bad news about just being in the dark, stuck and helpless and silenced. The first colors start to show. And eventually the butterfly emerges. And you're probably very familiar with the stories told about people who got impatient or just were sorry for the butterfly because it's hard for it to emerge. It, it gets stuck with the strands of the, 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 the fabric of the chrysalis. And so people have sometimes tried to help it by cutting those strands that were trapping it really which sounds like a kind thing to do, but it isn't. Because the butterfly needs to struggle to get through that, out of that chrysalis enclosure. Just as a baby, it struggles to get out of the enclosure of the birth canal. And that struggle, not so much in babies, I know because my daughter is a, an obstetrician, so she spends most of her life doing what she calls sunroof deliveries, <laughs> C-sections. <laughs> Um, so, and it's not true that a baby that's born by C-section has any disadvantages at all, but, um, but it, it, it is true for, for a butterfly, because if they don't have that struggle to emerge from the chrysalis, the circulation won't be activated to their wings, and they'll never fly, and therefore they'll ne they, they will die. That's what happens if you try to help a butter um, butterfly emerge. So the struggle is part of it. And don't we know? And don't we struggle? And don't we wish we didn't have to struggle? But, but again, the gospel never promised us a rose garden. It always said, you'll have to take up your cross as well. You'll have to do your own struggle to emerge, to transform into everything you can be. But then, a bit of good news, friends, because then the butterfly lies in the sun. That's nice. Lies in the sun and dries, dries its wings and soaks up the solar energy. So that would be a good way to spend Lent, I think. Mm -hmm. Lie in God's sun and soak up the solar energy and prepare for flights. So, and then another thing about the birthing of the, the, the chrysalis, it hangs by a thin thread. It's like a kind of umbilical cord and eventually that gets broken. And so the whole thing is very similar to, um, to the, the birth process for us. And struggle seems to be a key to, to evolution. It doesn't seem to happen without struggle. And then it takes flight. And let's see what it's like in butterfly world now, before we break at three and we'll have a, And after we've had a, a tea break or a whatever break, um, please come back and, and share any thoughts you may have. We'll have a kind of open sharing time after that. So the butterfly takes flight. Now imagine this creature flying over the forest. Now it sees a very different picture. It sees the whole forest. And it sees its own grandchildren and great-grandchildren down there chomping on the leaves. And it must, you know, if, if they could think like, if they were articulate in the way we are, what is that about? You know, why don't I go down and tell them, you really don't need to keep on and on expanding. You're going to be something else anyway. You transfer. It's a bit like the stories that we have in the Christian tradition and other traditions about um, the person who uh, 
It, well, there's a story about a, 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 some kind of hermit in the desert who lived very simply, had almost nothing, and this hiker came along um, seeking, seeking the truth, seeking the spirit, and stops with this guru and, and, and is amazed and says to this, this, this person, this hermit, but you've, you've got um, almost nothing here, you know, just a little bed, a little mat and a, a little stool. You've got almost nothing. And the hermit says to the hiker, but look at you, you're just carrying a small backpack. Oh, says the hiker, but I'm just passing through. And the hermit says, and so am I. <laughs> Which isn't to minimalize um, our earthly life at all, not at all. But there is a bigger picture. And the earthly story isn't all it is. It isn't all about getting the most comfortable lifestyle we can get while we're on the planet. Nor is it about getting the best trade deal or the best anything or the bigger car or anything like that. Not ultimately. Ultimately, there's a much bigger picture involved here. And it's about the future of the whole of humanity. And the, indeed, the whole of creation. Because we're just part of creation. So um, looking at that bigger picture... Um, and knowing that the caterpillars can't see it. They can't. They simply can't, any more than we can. But to know that there is a bigger picture, to believe in faith there is a bigger picture, which we've had glimpses of through Scripture, especially, and through, uh, through nature and through each other. We know there's a bigger picture, and Jesus promises a bigger picture and shows us something of that bigger picture. He shows us what it looks like in practice. Um, and when we're living within the bigger picture, we see caterpillar problems for what they are. They are really only caterpillar problems, but we can't communicate that back to the caterpillars. Nor can the caterpillars imagine that butterflies have any connection with them whatsoever. Just as we think we've got no connection with Jesus. Jesus is way up there and in a, on a different plane altogether. I don't think personally that's true. It shows us what we are destined to become, the fullness of uh, the human being fully alive. That's probably bad theology, but I'm, nobody's testing me on theology, so take it or leave it. But seeing the bigger picture, another parable uh, or story that comes to mind from the Gospel is the Mary and Martha story. Now, I, I don't know, many of you may have felt irritated with Mary as well, or even irritated with Jesus, because after all, he went there expecting dinner, and somebody's got to get the dinner, and poor Martha is slogging away in the kitchen, and it doesn't seem very good. And she, all she does is say, yes, well, Mary could give me a hand. And Jesus rather undiplomatically says, she's chosen the better part. The heck she has, you know. If you see that in a bigger way, in terms of the bigger picture, um, you, you could say Jesus is saying Mary is trying to tune into this bigger picture and you're, you're dealing with the issues of the here and now but that doesn't mean that you don't have to deal with those issues one hopes they all went and did the washing up but, but also to remember there's a Mary and a Martha in each of us and there's, there's, there's that in all of us that's caught up in the caterpillar world and all its problems and as soon as we leave this room we'll go out and face those problems um, and there's a Mary in us that knows, yeah, there's something more. And it's something that perhaps we t touches us. I won't say we touch it. It touches us in meditation and in prayer and in, and in social justice action and all kinds of things that, that are living the gospel. Uh, we, there is a bigger picture, and every so often it touches us and asks us to engage with it.
So um, we, we will see our situation very differently as we also evolve towards what Teilhard would call a higher level of consciousness. And I, I actually think that higher level is, is inside, or rather not inside, but I can see that we've grown since I was a child, for instance. Well, 50 or 60 years ago, nobody thought of recycling anything. Nobody cared about whether we were abusing the resources of the world. Nobody knew or cared much about world poverty. Um, and ecumenism was a dirty word in some quarters as well. And these things have changed dramatically. Now it's not politically correct not to recycle, not to be ecologically aware. Um, everybody, all of us know that about the, the issues of world poverty. We may not act on it, but we can't not know. And actually, they say that the, when there's a world, when there's a crisis, a critical event, either a natural event or a disaster or something man-made, a war, war event, the, the donations that are given to something like Disasters Emergency Committee or any of the other charities uh, are um, from ordinary people, far outstrip the collective donations of their governments, and that's across most countries. And I think that's actually a real sign of the times. <coughs> Incidentally, I don't know how you feel and the shocking revelations this last week, but I've, I'm hearing and, and I'm feeling resonance with the appeals to say, remember that these charities are helping people. Don't let's withdraw our support. That's the last thing they need, and that plays into the hands of right-wing factions in our world that would like to stop foreign aid. Let's not collude with that. that that's, obviously, it's a personal choice. But so the bigger picture, the bigger picture is what you see when you're a butterfly. The dining arrangements change. It was all grab and snack in Caterpillar world. Get what you can and, and keep on grabbing and snacking. Sounds like me in the evening. I can go all day without food, but I snack my way and graze the fridge at night. Terrible. The, the grabbing and snacking has given way in butterfly world to sip and savor at the nectary. If I ever open a pub or a coffee shop, I'll call it the nectary, I think. In fact, this place could be called a nectary where people sip and savor of the spirits, couldn't it? So now the, the butterfly, like the caterpillar, goes for what it wants, the nectar. It desires the nectar, it needs the nectar for nourishment. And it takes the nectar, but it never uh, enters a, a flower that isn't open. It doesn't force anything. It's the same with many other insects. They take what they need, but from the open flower, the flower that's inviting. And while they're doing it, they're also pollinating the flower. So now you've got a very different relationship. It's not a me first and I want the food and I'm going to take it in two bad if somebody else wanted it. Now it's a symbiotic relationship where both parties are enriched and enlivened by the encounter. Both the butterfly that takes the nectar and the flower that gets pollinated. That's moving from competition to co-op to cooperation, isn't it, that I looked at earlier. How different it would be if every time we took something, we were also enhancing something. We were not just not detracting from whatever it is that we take from. Um, and then um, it's a travel bug. Uh, it, uh, the, the butterflies travel. 
They make long migratory, some of them make long migratory journeys of up to 9,000 kilometers. That's from the monarchs and I'm not sure what else. But they come in, butterflies come in short haul, medium haul, and long haul flyer status, just as our aircraft do. Um, some of them really don't fly far at all, and um, some of them fly these massive long journeys, up to 9,000 kilometers, and you only uh, you weigh less than a gram. And they they travel from uh, the, the monarchs. Certainly, one of their migratory routes is from Mexico to Canada. And the, the joy of it is they fly right over any walls that anybody might want to put in their way. <laughs> Which is very satisfying, I think, you know, that a butterfly can out-trump the trump. <laughs> but then the question of why do they, why do, they do it? Um, and it struck me that this is, maybe has something to say to us. They are, first and foremost, they, well, there are two reasons. One is that they are escaping from predators. There are some nasty predators around in butterfly world. Um, there are particularly nasty kind of wasp that lays its egg, I think, inside the caterpillar. It somehow gets under its skin. And that takes over, even takes over the genome. It's really very nasty. Uh, there are things in our world today that get under our skin, especially get under the skin of young people. Uh, really nasty things like ISIS and their <coughs> ideology, if you can call it that, um, which gets underneath the skin of people and changes them so dramatically that they become uh, quite barbaric in the kind of cruelties that they'll perpetrate. Um, so, but not all predators are as nasty as that, but, but they, there's, a, there's one reason to fly these distances, is to get away from things that are threatening. In, that, in other words, some, some part of the butterfly journeys are journeys as refugees. But the, perhaps the main reason is that they follow the wildflower trail. Obviously, if you hatched in Mexico, um, the, the, the seasons change so that the flowers that you need to get your nectar from or the leaves that you need to eat if you're a caterpillar will be coming out at different seasons through, the, you know, you're flying a journey like that. It's very different climate in Mexico to, than Canada. So you could say that they follow the wildflower trail and therefore they are economic migrants. And it struck me that that we have a different attitude in generally in, in Britain and in perhaps in Europe generally um, to refugees and migrants. We sometimes rather grudgingly accept that we should always accept refugees because they, they're leaving terrible situations behind. Unfortunately, it's not always the case. Not every refugee is given asylum, but that's another question. But on the whole, we sort of think that's the kind of right thing to do but with economic migrants, we clearly think that's a different matter. I want to say, I've got a neighbor, I have to tell you, and he's a very nice guy, and I, you know, I get on well with him and his wife, but I don't remember there ever being a conversation with him that didn't include something like, but I'm not prejudiced, but. I'm not a bigot, but. I've nothing against Im immigrants, but. There's always a button. It's always, I don't actually want them, and I don't, yeah, I am actually a bigot. <laughs> and, and I tease him about this. I, I see it coming, you know, and I stop and say, Peter, I can see the bot coming, just stop right there, you know. 
because <laughs> I'm not going to agree with you on this. But um, when I do hear people banging on about economic migrants, now I realize we're only a little island and there's a limit to how much one little island can hold. But, that's my but, um, this whole country, right back, look at the history. For since time immemorial, or rather since the, since the New World and Australia were discovered, they were, of course, not discovered. They were always there, and there were people living there, more to the point. It was not uh, virgin territory. But since those countries became accessible to people in Europe, there have always been, we have been the economic migrants following the wildflower trail wherever we thought we'd have a better life, and we still do that. So why is it suddenly wrong if it goes the other way around? People come looking for a better life here. I know there are problems, and I don't know, but you know what, if we can put a man on the moon, if we can fly to distant planets, if we can solve the problems, the mysteries of quantum mechanics, You'd think we could find solutions, practical solutions to some of these issues. Anyway, um, the, the butterflies, to me, tell me, yes, they are refugees, and yes, they are economic migrants, and no, no walls will stop them. But the interesting thing is, you may well say, people will ask, and I don't know the answer explicitly, how long do butterflies actually live? Well, they live for different lengths of time. Some don't live for long at all. It's only a matter of days. Some live for longer periods. But no butterfly lives long enough to fly 9,000 kilometers. So where, do they, where, where does this journey get? How does it get done? And I think this is a very important message for our times. And it's, it, let's stay in this country because we can see it visibly before our eyes at the moment. Um, the intergenerational stresses, whereby the people who are the millennials now and the, the young people who are growing up now have a way worse deal than most of us did when we were their age. I, I, when I left school, tertiary education, university education was not only free, but it also came along with subsistence allowances for people on low incomes, and my, my parents were on low income, so I got a grant as well. So left university with a, with a debt, not for a long time, and a long time after that did it. Um, we left school, a lot of us, it depends on your age of course, at a time of pretty well full employment. So we didn't really have much problem getting jobs. And once you got a job and the housing market was sort of reasonably stable at the time, it wasn't that difficult to get into the housing, onto the housing ladder. So a lot of people of my generation, by the time they were 30-ish in their 30s, would have probably had a steady job, a sound education, and, um, and a house that, with a mortgage, but you know, they'd have their own home. And with the, the prospect that in 20, 25 years they would own it outright, which many of us do, or there'd be complications along the way. But, but yeah, we, many of us are mortgage-free when we become pensioners. And then a pension, we've got the NHS, we've got all the benefits that that brings. Without the constant threat of what might happen when it doesn't work, hanging over us. So we've had a very, we've had a Goldilocks deal and there, it's extremely unjust that our young people don't get that. 
or, or that this, the equalization somehow has to happen. And I know that a lot of young people are very resentful of that. And I also know that a great many parents and grandparents are, are doing the bank of mom and dad. In fact, the bank of mom and dad lends more than most building societies now. Did you know that? Yeah. Um, it's huge. And, and it's usually interest-free as well. Most parents would make it interest-free. So um, a lot of people are trying to even that out, either financially or in the care, looking after the grandchildren, which is no easy matter when you're in your 70s, or let alone your 80s, to take on board young kids who, are keep, who have to be towed to school every day and uh, entertained because you're not in the zone when you're 70 like you were when you were 30. I speak from my own depths of despair. I don't know what to do with small children. I just wait for them to grow up and stop being so demanding. <laughs> but there's, there's a real attempt to, um, to try and equalize this imbalance. So the butterflies have got something to tell us. They make these long journeys, but they don't do it in one generation. So they start off from Mexico, let's say, and they fly until they come to the end of their lifespan. Then they lay an egg, or the eggs, before they die. And those eggs, then there's a hiatus in the journey because then those eggs have to hatch and get, become caterpillars and go through the metamorphosis themselves. And so several weeks later, after this has all happened, they pick up the journey. It's like a relay race. They pick up the journey where their parents left off, and they fly to the next staging post. And that can be up to three or even four uh, kind of uh, episodes in this journey or parts of this journey until the, the ones who are holding the baton at the end of the journey get to Canada. And it's a bit different on the way back because at some point they do overwinter somewhere. Um, but it strikes me as fascinating and it, it reminds me of the, there's a saying in the Talmud, we are not required to complete the task. That's very reassuring. But we are not free to abandon it. And for me, that really spoke volumes. That, because most of us have got a secret messiah complex that thinks, I've only got another few years, and I've got an awful lot of world to redeem before I go. <laughs> and of course, that's nonsense. And you know it's nonsense. But there's a sense of somehow you've got to, you've got to have completed something. And you've got to present this completed task at the Purdy Gates and hope that St. Peter will pass it. Uh, that's nothing to do with faith. It's to do with the way we were raised. We had to pass exams, and you had to get 51% and not 49% just to, to look at those troubled percentages again. But the, the sense of, uh, will I pass or will I fail, depending on how well I've done. Um, it, it's very reassuring to know that we're part of this journey towards the future that we can become. Our generation is part of it. Um, but it depends on us not only to do our part, but also to pass on the wisdom of the way. How do these, the next generation of butterflies know which way to go next? They have this inbuilt radar. It's amazing how that wisdom is, is, is endemic and is, is somehow ingrained in their DNA. The memory, real, real memory, they do know where to go. But our children don't. There's nothing sort of, I don't think anyway, there's nothing really instinctive. Uh, I think there is, there is a, 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 a challenge to us to how do, we, how do we share the wisdom of the way? How do we pass it on in ways that they will 
resonate with, frankly. Not the whole story. You do it like this because we've always done it like this. And you get yourself to church on Sunday because you've got to and because God will be cross if you don't, that kind of story. But um, how do we pass on that wisdom? I'll, I'll share some thoughts on that in the, just the, in the last session, see how that speaks to you. I'll read you a, a little extract from the book again. But, um, yeah, we are... We are part of a journey. It's not, we're not asked to redeem the world or to bring the whole hum, of human, humanity to a new level of consciousness. But we are not free to abandon it. We are invited and challenged and expected, I think, by the Holy Spirit to play our part in carrying it forward through our generation on the, by the values that we've learned, the values of, of peace, justice, compassion, listening, um, all the, the fruits of the spirit, really. So, yeah, we are, what is, what is it we're, we're heading towards? Um, I would say the, the new consciousness is the best possible version of human, that humanity can be on this planet. That's what we're called to be. And there's no prizes for seeing why we're far short of it at the moment but there are lots of signs that, that, that we are moving towards that and the other thing that there are yet there's gradual movement towards it but sometimes it needs cataclysmic change to bring something about and only when the egg breaks can the new chick hatch only when something actually falls apart can the, the um, that Holy Spirit or that strange attractor working in the heart of the chaos actually bring forth something new. So one thing I've learned from exploring this metaphor is not to be so afraid of the chaos and even to trust that within the chaos um, is the very thing that will lead us the key to the future in some way, even though it looks like such a horrible mess. And what's more, a self-inflicted mess. So that's the worst of it. Sometimes when things, bad things happen, or things happen that you think are not how they should be, you think, well, that's unfortunate, but let's see how we deal with this. You know, for instance, illness or accident or so. But when you've actually chosen the mess without knowing what it would be, either way, I mean, it could have been the same mess either way, I think. Maybe not um, after the referendum. But the, the, this is something that, seems so problematic, let's put it that way. I think that's putting it fairly, whichever side you would have voted. It's problematic now, really. But it may be that in trying to resolve those problems is the very way forward that we will grow um, in some way, grow closer. Not This isn't a Boris, Boris Pep talk thing, let's all be friends again, a Billy Do or Valentine's thing that he sent out, followed by a, a shower of arrows. Um, it's not that. It's just somehow or other the whole of humanity will, I believe, gradually move closer together and recognize our interdependence. And it may take shake-ups like this um, to, to, to bring that about. Shake-ups that are global, really. They're not just local to us. They're global. And it is, uh, any of you have read Karen Armstrong, she speaks about axial ages, where every 500 years or so, you can't map it that exactly, but really things go into total meltdown and everything that you thought you were standing on firm ground, the tectonic plates start to shift. And, and it's terrifying. 
Um, but yet they are the times when humanity moves to a, a new level and you, you, know, you, you do see it when you look back. We may, I think we are on the brink of an axial age now or we are sitting, we are just melting down into the chrysalis. Uh, so what will happen next? And that's really why I try to, um, to write what I did for my own sake more than anyone else's. Other, another thing just to remember is the butterfly effect. Remember the butterfly effect because the, the butterfly effect says that one small change in initial conditions as tiny as the air pressure difference when a butterfly flaps its wings is enough through feedback loops to cause a, a hurricane somewhere else the opposite side of the planet. So the power of one, that is so important. Every one of us has the power of one. The power to make more life-giving decisions, decisions and choices in our ordinary lives, in how we relate to our neighbours, to our friends, the choices we make in, you know, whether we buy free um, fair trade tea or that kind of thing. Those choices, not trying to send anybody on guilt trips here. I, I love Yorkshire tea, frankly. Um, but um, the choices that we make, the simple choices, have profound effects that we can't predict. And so a kind word that you didn't even realize you were making can change someone's life and change the way they relate to the people around them. And that's a positive feedback loop that gathers and gathers momentum and can have massive effects somewhere else. So the butterfly effect is very, very encouraging. And the other thing that's encouraging is that however grubby and pesky we feel, grubbing, uh, eating our way along the, cut, the, the leaf, Nevertheless, from the very beginning, when we were first laid on that leaf as an egg, we were born to fly. And, but to do that, you, we have to literally, literally become the change we long for. That saying, is that Gandhi that said that? We have to become the change we long for. The, the caterpillar quite literally becomes the change through the chrysalis meltdown becomes the butterfly it longs for. We too are, um, that's, that's the invitation to us, to literally become the change we long for. That means actually embodying in our own lives the values that we, we hold dear, and that will make us more and more fully human. Welcome back, friends, for the last hop of our journey together. I hope it's the first hop of the rest of our lives. Um, but I, I wanted to read you something which might point us towards the future. In, I want to, us to go out in hope, authentic hope, not a kind of cliche hope that everything's going to be fine when whatever happens. You know, not that kind of hope, but a, a genuine hope that comes from deep. So I'll, just, I'll read this little extract, if I may. Oh, yes, four pages. Can you bear with that? Because for me, it kind of summed up where I was at at the end of Hinton Wings before I embarked on um, how do you do it in practice. So this is the imaginal cell, her parting words, you could say, to, to us and to her caterpillars and to the book. And it's called Imagining the Future. I've just laid the last of my eggs. 
I hope I've given them the best possible chance, placing them on the choicest milkweed. It's a bittersweet moment. It's such an amazing thing to be able to give life to the future. But for me, it's also laced with sorrow, because soon I will die. I have fulfilled my purpose, and now I must hand the baton of life to the next generation. In the short time that still remains to me, I find myself reflecting on the hopes and dreams I have for these children of mine. Perhaps you'll be kind enough to indulge me as I explore them, because I imagine that these reflections would be even more poignant for you, our human cousins, when you give birth. And of course, you don't have to be physically a parent to be both fearful and hopeful for those who will come after you. When you lay an egg or birth a baby, you are committing a new life into a completely unknown future. It's a daunting prospect. Small wonder that so many new parents are terrified by the thought. In today's world, that fear is very much amplified by global events and dangerous political directions that seem to be developing. It would be easy to see why fear might greatly outstrip hope. This kind of musing leads me to ask myself, what do I hope for for my descendants? What kind of future do I imagine with my imaginal self? What guidance would I want to give them to help them along the way ahead? A way that includes both nectar and wasps. It leads me also to invite you to ponder these questions for your descendants and future inhabitants and custodians of our shared home. I would want to warn my offspring that they will hatch into a world where there are many other creatures out to get them and that natural defences will be required. Every living creature soon learns that the rest of creation does not necessarily mean well. And I would have to mention that they will grow into greedy little grubs who will recklessly consume the very environment that supports them. That they will expand beyond all reasonable limits until they realize that they can't keep up this rapacious lifestyle. I will have to point out that this will lead to a terrible meltdown in which they will think their entire universe is going to hell on a handcart. So far, it doesn't look much like a dream to be handing on. It looks more like a nightmare. So from the very beginning of their lives, I would also tell them, if only I could, the great secret that they hold within themselves the promise of a very different kind of world curled up inside their imaginal cells. I would teach them to trust that promise. And by way of evidence, I would show them my wings and tell them the story of my amazing journeys. I would assure them that if they dare but risk the flight, they will be sustained along the way dazzled by the sunlight, intoxicated by the sweetest nectar, cherished by humankind as bringers of hope. I would teach them that obtaining what you desire must go hand in hand with giving life to others. I would urge them never to harm a flower by force, 
but always to wait for the right moment to be invited in. I would tell them all of this if I could, but before they hatch, I will be gone. For you, my human friends, it is not so. You have the great privilege of time in which to get to know your children and grandchildren and to teach them the wisdom that life has placed in your own hearts. What are you dreaming for them? They won't need you to show them how destructive human life is of this planetary home we share. They'll see that for themselves. They won't need any instruction on the deadly effects of greed, reckless consumption, violent speech and action, egocentric leadership, or ruthless conflict. They will see it every day on television. They will be bombarded with it on social media. But by the same channels, they will also pick up messages of protest, of hope, and the possibility of change. Where they will need you is to provide wise guidance on how to navigate these perilous waters you call human life. Only from you, their elders, will they learn as they grow up how to choose between the destructive and the creative paths through life. They may or may not listen to what you say, but they will be far more profoundly influenced by who you are. If you are to convince them that there is a better, more life-giving way, you will need to show them your wings. Don't you believe you have wings? Then let me ask you, how did humanity fly this far? How did you move beyond the horrors of the medieval period? She's okay. Is anybody with with that lady? I'll go and see you. Uh, how did you move beyond the horrors of the medieval period? How did you discover the importance of education and universal health care? How did you, albeit very slowly, learn the importance of tolerance and the art of listening to those who may not share your opinions? of de debating important issues leading to the beginnings of democratic government? How did you learn to respect minorities in your midst and protect their rights and to cherish the welfare of the planet itself? Who taught you to re reject all violence as a solution to your problems and to strive for peaceful and civilized solutions instead? Who urged you to open your borders to those fleeing persecution, and even to question your right to erect those borders in the first place, given that you first took the land you now call yours from other peoples who had settled there long before you arrived? You did all this, my friends, by becoming the change you longed for. You will pass on this transformative potential to those who come after you by demonstrating its power in your own lives, your own generation, your own place and time. Of course, the process of your spiritual evolution is still woefully incomplete, but the call is there, moment by moment, tightly enclosed in your own imaginal cells. They not only know the future fullness, but they already contain it. Don't ridicule them or call them troublemakers. Listen to the prophetic voices within you and around you. 
Shun the evil wasps who get under your skin and lay the seeds of discord, conflict and hatred in your hearts. I think you know who they are and what they look and sound like in human world. I think you recognize the tone and menace of their rhetoric. The future you dream of for those who come after you may seem as remote and unimaginable to you today as the butterfly seems remote and unimaginable to the caterpillar. Look at me and you will see that it is actually closer to you than your own next breath waiting only for its moment to unfurl its wings in a world that lives by very different values from those that prevail at present on the planet we call home. The great secret known deep in the heart of the imaginal cell is that new life emerges out of great turbulence and that the only way to discover it is to plunge into the turbulence and trust it to bring forth its fruit. The secret is hidden in plain sight, in human experience, in physics and mathematics, in the natural world, and in ancient wisdom. There, for example, we find a strange story about, that we've already seen about a pool of water in the old city of Jerusalem. Those who were sick believed that every so often the waters of the pool would be agitated by the touch of an angel. A person who entered the waters during these stormy periods would be healed and restored. Perhaps this is also a story for our times. The storm angel is here in force. But there's a great gift hidden in troubled times. And like a treasure on the ocean floor, it will only be found by those who have the courage and the trust to enter the waters. So this would be my last word to my still unhatched children. Don't be afraid of the turbulence, for it holds new life. You can't stay in the egg. You can't remain in your caterpillar form. You can't be a chrysalis forever. Trust your imaginal cells. Plunge into the waters of transformation because you are born to fly.